there, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Shoulder, and this is Learning to Fail. People are complicated. I know a lot of complicated people. My guest today is Andy Ray. Andy is a master craftsman and author of countless books and articles on woodworking. We had an amazing conversation about life, loss, and what we've learned along the way. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Before we get started, I just want to say how much I appreciate people taking time out of their lives to talk to me, let alone listen. This podcast is my avenue for expanding the way I think and the things I think about. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about learning to fail and encourage them to tell theirs. Take a moment to rate us on iTunes and check out our website for additional information about each of the people we interview. While you're there, please visit our Donate and Amazon pages. Each page will give you clear instructions on what to do. For the time being, we're a completely donation-based podcast, so all of our episodes are being brought to you by you. Our donation page will allow you to make one-time or recurring donations. Our Amazon portal enables you to support the podcast without spending any extra money of your own. Please bookmark our Amazon page and start your shopping there every time you visit or buy anything on Amazon. The most helpful thing you can do is simply to listen to the podcast and encourage others to do the same. The world will be a better place when we can all start learning to fail together. Let's start failing now with Andy Ray. I'm here with Andy Ray, who is a friend of mine. We shared a shop together for about a year, felt like five years. Did. Not because of uh, our experience of sharing it together, but just the nightmare of construction that was going on there the entire time. So I had moved my company into that building and I was told there'd be two years before anybody would start to even enter the space I rented. And within two months, they were tearing the place apart and just destroying all this merchandise that I ship all over the world. It was a nightmare. But uh, in the process, uh, we met, which was really great. And I remember meeting you in the beginning and like right away we started talking shop and then I wanted to borrow a clamp and you're like, you're not touching my clamps. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I have some experience. He's like, no, man, these are fine woodworking clamps and you can't touch them. <laughs> That's before I knew you were a bona fide woodworker. I understood. I understood. It was a funny experience. So I was like, all right. And I was like, I know what I'm doing. You're like, no, nah, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> shop policy so i you know what as somebody who's very persnickety about his tools and stuff i understood it and respected it and yeah. and uh and it was fine but uh, anyway it was funny so but i'm really appreciate you being here and um it's exciting to get this started because we have you know a shared history in woodworking um but your history in woodworking outpaces mine by you know miles and miles and and so i really am looking forward to hearing your story uh, as far as how you got into it, I know you've published a bunch of books and I don't know how many articles. And um, also, you know, you've, I mean, if you're comfortable talking about some of your personal life, I want this to be as yeah. genuine and personal as possible because you're someone I care about and I would like that to come through. Uh, so feel free to share or not share whatever you want. Say any words you want, cussing, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, this is, 
damn, immediately. Uh, so, you know, really, this should be, should just feel like uh, we're having a chat in the shop like we used to. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, thanks, Jason. So maybe I should start out way back when in my woodworking world where I started from, which was pure happenstance, I have to think. Um, my brother worked for a famous woodworker by the name of George Nakashima back in, probably in the 80s or maybe late 70s. And he uh, was mostly a carpenter and, and helped build George's daughter's house across the road from George Nakashima's compound where he made uh, slab style furniture, we could call it. It's a lot of um, solid wood furniture and he's well known for his huge table, dining tables and other kind of tables and chairs and his, um, just his attention to, uh, to the wood itself as a living, breathing material. And so Gurney, my brother, had worked there, did a little bit of work in the shop, but he likes to be outdoors as a carpenter. And, and uh, I was out of a job and he said, why don't you go get a, a job with George? And so I did and I spent a year in his finishing shop wiping, uh, hand wiping oils with no ventilation, no gloves onto some of the most spectacular wood I've still ever come across. And left about a year later with a dysfunctioning liver, but with this incredible thirst for how to put that wood together because I never really did any, any woodwork per se. I just was doing finishing for a year. And so George is really the inspiration for me to get into the craft that I'm in today by really being exposed to some of the nicest furniture out there. Um, and from there, I just went from cabinet shop to cabinet shop, working for people that I admired. And, you know, I'd look at their work and, and then apply for a job and spend, um, you know, hours sanding and moving up the ranks until I started learning a little bit about the craft. And I um, was living in Princeton, New Jersey at the time with a, a pretty ramshackle place called Edel Farm where we had 188 acres in the township. And it was owned by a man by the name of Alex Edel who founded Sculpture House, which was the first and only sculpture uh, accessory um, store or supply in the country to supply sculptors with sculpting tools, as well as Roma clay, which he invented, which is still used by sculptors around the world. Anyway, we all had cheap rent, and I had a, a small, tiny studio that I shared with another sculptor and a photographer. Dave Can and Connie Wellnitz. And eventually, um, everybody moved out. The, the studio next to ours, and they moved out, and I claimed all the space. So I started out with the company name called Andy Ray Woodworking Studios, with a plural, because I've always been in more than one studio. And uh, that was my start. I just didn't, you know, I didn't know a whole lot in the beginning, but uh, working for other cabinet makers and woodworkers kind of cemented my some of my knowledge and definitely my desire to keep designing and building in the craft. Um, and I think I have George to thank for that. So uh, here I am today in my 14th shop in the same building that Jason and I shared, still dealing with construction all around me and water outages and electric outages and, and rainwater coming through the top of the building onto my floor and, and vacuuming up lakes and uh, still putting out work um, and in the interim I uh, landed a job 
probably 15 years ago now, maybe 20 years, with uh, a publication called American Woodworker <clears throat> that was housed in, in, uh, at Rodale Press in a little town called Emmaus, Pennsylvania, which is basically a suburb of Allentown, southeastern PA. And I spent six years as a senior editor for the magazine writing about woodworking and traveling all over the country interviewing woodworking guys and editing stories and taking photos. And that got me into writing. Um, and it was pure happenstance that I got the job because, again, I was out of work and a, a friend called, or an editor from the magazine called, Ellis Wallentine, and he was just kind of pumping for news to see if there was anything of interest that he might use me in the magazine. And out of the blue, I said, are you guys looking for an editor? And they have, they just uh, at that time were looking for someone to fill a spot. So I came up for an interview with the uh, executive editor, David Sloan, who also happened to be the publisher. And I had no prior writing experience. I'd come from a family of writers. My stepfather was a writer his whole life. So it wasn't a foreign entity to me, but um, he said, I'll give you five weeks. And if it works out, you know, we'll hire you. And then five weeks later, you said you got the job. And it took me about a year to learn how to edit a story, which was a rough first year at the time. But uh, since then, writing has become fairly fluid to me. And uh, I guess in 1998, I began my first project in writing, which was a pretty big book that I put together called The Complete Illustrated Guide furniture and cabinet construction and it was published by Taunton Press and since then I've, I've written um, oh, four other books I guess on woodworking all on woodworking made some DVDs taught classes um, blog on the internet and so on and so forth um, and I'm right now trying in the process of revising that first book for a updated version because it's getting close to 20 years old which is kind of cool. It's just to keep it on the market and keep it relevant. Yeah, I mean, um, the technology has yeah. changed hugely since then, right? I mean, it has. And one of the things that Taunton has done is they've taken all this stuff and they've electrified it or electronified it, put it online, and you can buy a chapter from one of my books. You can buy a segment from one of my DVDs. You can buy all of it electronically or you can buy the paperback version. About two years ago, it got translated into German and I got a royalty check from Germany for like a thousand dollars because like 500 Germans had bought the book. And then last year it got uh, translated into Korean. Wow. So I'm just waiting for Qatar to call. <laughs> so, so right now I'm, I'm, my mix is, is uh, furniture design and building and writing about it. And I've been doing a lot of writing for Woodcraft magazine the past five years or more. Uh, mostly, project articles and some technique articles. And then I'm always looking for commission work from um, people who appreciate fine woodworking to get furniture out the door. Yeah, I built furniture for a long time in LA. I mean, that was what I did before I moved to Asheville. And um, I got to a point where I'm so fastidious with my work that you know no one could afford the amount yeah. of time it would take me to build something. I mean, and I couldn't afford my own work, you know? And I mean, I just like, I mean, there's definitely people in LA with money, and uh, but and there's a few of them who are willing to to pay for stuff like that. But it's it's the exception more than the norm. And the last thing that I built for someone, it was I don't know, it was like a twenty five hundred dollar dresser or something. But it was nice, and it was small. And this guy owned uh, a 
Nakashima, is that his name? Yeah. He owned a Nakashima table with like the butterfly joints yes, and everything. Yeah, and and, uh, and after I d- installed the dresser in his house, you know, he's like, now I own a Nakashima and a Jason. <laughs> <laughs> well, Which... it should be that way because what we do is is fine woodwork. It's it's not, it's, it's very utilitarian in my book because that's what I like to make. I like to make functional furniture, but at the same time, it's beautiful because you spend a lot of time fussing over all the little details and time in our world is money if you spend 10 hours on something you need to be paid for the 10 hours you put in and it's it's a struggle to be able to build the kind of stuff that i like to design and get paid for it so finding the clients is kind of half the issue yeah no totally i remember um i had sort of funny realization when i moved into this house that i live in now where i have a kitchen that i hate yeah. But it's totally functional. Like this is the kind of kitchen if it's you know oak raised panel doors. I mean, I built cabinets for a while and and if I walked into a house like this, I mean, I would shame the customers into letting me replace the entire thing. Yeah. And I walked into this house and I just the first thing I was like I cannot believe that I'm about to buy a house with the exact kind of kitchen that I love. Yeah, and, and um and I was like maybe I can put handles on the doors. I had all these fixes that would be affordable to make it a little less awful. None of them have I done because I've always had this fantasy that I was going to replace the kitchen. But it's just not shitty enough to replace. Like yeah, it's, it's nice. I'm mean, looking at it now. It's a nice kitchen, but it's all factory work. It's got it's, zero character. It's, right. It's what everybody sees everywhere else. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. unfortunately red oak, which is the America's worst. most popular wood right now and has been for yeah. years. Yeah. And it just doesn't. It's the aesthetic of ignorance. Yes. Yeah. When I see red oak. Create a beautiful atmosphere. <laughs> I feel badly saying that because I know, like, I just insulted the majority of the country. But when I, you know, I'm like, I talk to people about wood and they don't really know me. People haven't heard that many woods, you know. Yeah. And they're like, I really like oak. I'm like, God, you know, really? Like, it's, that's just the most. Well, it's interesting because there's red oak and there's white oak. There's actually all kinds of oaks. There's hundreds of oaks in the world, but. The two common oaks that we deal with here in the States and, and particularly in this area of Western North Carolina are, are red oak and white oak. And I love white oak. It's got this subtle color and character that speaks of elegance and, and refinement. And you put it next door to red oak and you've got garish trump wood. Trump wood? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you've got Sanders. You've got Bernie Sanders, yes. white oak. And, uh, no, Bernie's not white oak. <laughs> he's not no, white oak. What would, he, what would you call Bernie, Bernie Sanders? Bernie might be, I don't know, something semi-exotic, but it should be local. Is he curly maple? He could be, yeah, curly maple would be a good idea. It's something nice, but yeah. a little He's from Vermont, right? So, edgy. I mean, it would be, maple would make yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember just, uh, I remember the thing about, uh, the, the, one of the reasons I quit making cabinets and furniture, I mean, there were a lot of reasons, but one of them was just realizing that people didn't care. Yeah. They didn't, it wasn't worth it to them. Like the amount of work that I was going to put into it, whether they wanted it or not, yeah. they didn't care about it. And when I moved into this house and I had this horrible kitchen and I kept it, I realized I don't care enough either. You fell into that character. And I was like, wow, now I understand yeah. why I couldn't sell more jobs yeah. because it's just not. It's not as important to people as it felt to me when I was making it. It's almost like we're all artists. And it's almost as if you have to sell your work to an artist because artists have that sensitivity to appreciate the difference between white oak and red oak, let's say. Or, you know, a door that's been specifically designed to fit your space versus something coming from a factory that goes to thousands and thousands of homes. Right. Uh, But looking at your kitchen now, you know... 
one of the things about doors and drawers, I wrote a book on door, building doors and drawers, is that a kitchen especially is the public face of a kitchen is all of its doors and drawers, not the casework. So the work to, to revise and update your kitchen would be just build new doors and new drawer fronts. You can leave the drawer boxes in place, keep all the hardware, and put your new doors and new drawer faces right in there and have what you want. Yeah, I know. I know that I could cheat it like that, and that would be Hollywooding my kitchen, and it would make a lot of sense. But um, I also don't like the functionality of the drawers. They don't open all the way, no. and, the, and they're, the, no. the bottoms of the drawers are where I have heavy stuff. The bottoms are falling out. You know, and disconnecting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's a, it is a rabbit hole. I'm just not willing to go down. Um, I don't blame you. But the house is for sale, and it's got a lovely kitchen. <laughs> we like your kitchen <laughs> for anybody who likes red oak. Uh-huh. So, um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated uh, with this, the story. You know, the podcast is learning to fail, and that's sort of the concept behind this whole thing. It's a phrase I learned when I was shooting a documentary about comedians. A number of years ago and um this in in comedy you're everybody fails their first time or most people do and and learning to fail especially in comedy is really an important part of getting good like you have yeah. to learn how to endure failure on stage because you're gonna fail some of the time you're up there i mean i was at an open mic last night where i performed i was second to last so i failed to get there on time to be have a better spot on the list and but as a result i watched every comic before me and some of them just flatlined the room i mean there's there were no laughter for the entire five or six minutes what's out of curiosity what's the preferred spot first well the fullest so whenever the room is the fullest that's when you want to be on stage and last night the room was fullest for the first comic Mm -hmm. and then it just i just watched it thin out one or two people at a time. It was very, very subtle until before I got on stage, unrelated to me, they hadn't announced me yet. The whole front row got up and left simultaneously. <laughs> so by the time I got up there, there was, you know, I was talking to just the back of the room. Yeah, that's got to be disheartening. Oh man, it was brutal. But I'm used to it because I'm new yeah. on the scene and I end up going last every time. So I'm kind of accustomed to having a smaller crowd and having to really draw laughs out of there, you know. Um, and I record my sets, but my, my, recording devices on the stool on the stage so it gets me but it doesn't get enough of the laughter so i can't tell when i listen back if things are working or not unless it's uh-huh. really funny and the room totally busts up that i can hear but if it's just like a gentle appreciative laughter doesn't pick it up yeah so anyway um i wanted to bring that concept into other things i mean i i, I can only imagine and i certainly you know could share war stories about things i learned along the way and the horrors of of making expensive mistakes <laughs> more and more expensive as the jobs got more expensive um but this process of learning to fail and what you know maybe what are some of your greatest uh failures, failures. slash <laughs> learning experiences it's it's a great question because it's in woodworking and especially in furniture making it happens all the time because in my work i'm usually doing something i've never or i'm designing and building a piece of furniture that I've never designed or built before. So a lot of the joinery and a lot of the process is similar, but there's going to be something coming up that's going to throw me a curveball. So it's common every week that I'm in the shop. Um, but it made me think about what you're saying that I've run it. I've spent a lot of time with a lot of woodworkers in their shops and I've worked alongside woodworkers and 
so many times I see somebody do something where they fuck up, they make a mistake, the wood's trashed, or maybe they even get hurt. And I see them walk away, and when they come back, they haven't processed what's happened. They haven't looked at that and said a real simple question, what did I do wrong? And they just plow ahead. And then they start making the same mistake again and again. And so my mistakes, one of the, one of my worst mistakes ever, was five days into a cabinet shop, which I subsequently worked for <clears throat> for five years at a, at a, for a really awesome man by the name of Bill Draper up in Perkasie, Pennsylvania. And I put my hand into a dado blade. And if you're not a woodworker, I'll tell you what a dado blade is. It's just a series of stacked saw blades that make a wider saw blade, essentially. So here I was with a spinning dado blade that was about three quarters of an inch wide as opposed to an eighth inch wide and through my own ignorance i put my hand into the blade and i spent five weeks out of the shop and then uh, on workman's comp and then i came back and faced my fears and looked at that same table saw and got back on it and that went well the, the thing that i did more than anything was ask myself what happened what did I do? What did I do wrong? Is there something I could do that would prevent that in the future? And there was, because I was looking at it and studying where I had screwed up on that cut. You know, it's embarrassing when you make something and you do something wrong and something gets screwed up and um, we're all embarrassed by that. But if we don't look at it and say, why did that happen? Then we're probably destined to keep making the same moves again and again and again, instead of you know, I see it as an opportunity to move up on the learning curve and get better at what I'm doing, especially when safety is concerned. But it's it's more than just safety. It's it's just being able to make stuff that's sound and you make it in good time without too many mistakes, without a lot of frustration, and you can pay your bills because you get paid for the time that you put into your work. So um, just asking the question, why did I do that, is a really good one. And for me, it was a very basic woodworking tenon, I was putting my hand on the aft side of the blade, on the forward side, which you really in any case should never do, trying to drop a piece of wood onto a spinning blade and the wood caught and then my hand was holding the wood, my left hand, and it went along for the ride and went into the blade. And there was blood everywhere. But I, I healed fine. It took stitches and lost a little bit of bone, but everything worked out pretty well. Just a little bit of Just bone. Bit of I like how bone. casual you said that. I lost a little bit of bone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was, you know, it was, it was a scary thing. But at the same time, my reaction was, wow, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Because I, I didn't know. I was a pretty yeah. green woodworker at the time. And I subsequently learned what happened. And that's, that's put me in good stead, certainly for table saw use since then. That was probably 15 to 20 years ago. And, and I haven't had any serious accidents knock on wood since then i'll never forget when i put my first table saw together in my shop i real like i got a real one like i had you know a ryobi kind of you know job site saw that i was using and cabinet saw yeah well this was not i mean they sold it as a cabinet saw it was like 500 bucks it had a built-in sliding table it had so many things going that anybody who knows woodworking would know not to buy it <laughs> because it just offered too much for 500 bucks and so I replaced it with a Powermatic, which is yeah. like, it was industry standard, you know. That's what saw. I mean by cabinet saw, yeah. 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 So, um, and I remember like putting the cast iron table together. I almost chopped my finger off just 
putting the table together. Yeah. And and that's when I learned to do the middle screw first so that there's no weight because you have three screws along right. the side to level the table. And if you do one side, you're still holding the whole weight of the cast iron. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I but I didn't somehow, I literally don't know how, I didn't cut my hand. And there was another time I was slicing bread on a bandsaw, and I swear, kind of like in a Pulp Fiction way when the bullets went right through them, I'm telling you, my hand went through that blade and did not get cut. Like, there's no way that I wow. that I didn't... The way I did it, I certainly wasn't conscious of the blade possibly cutting my hand when it was cutting the bread. And the way I was holding the bread, I gotta tell you, I, I'm, to this day, I feel like the angels intervened and somehow my hand was safe. I mean, not a scratch. Wow. But uh, I have since hurt myself a couple times. But... Um, so anyway, so I got this table saw together. It took me two days by myself following the instructions one bolt at a time. And I'd never put anything together like that in my entire life. And I didn't know when I got into woodworking that I was also going to have to become a machinist. Like nobody told me that. And yeah. um, so I got the thing together and it was like four in the afternoon. It was the second day and I was like pretty excited. It was really powerful, like five horsepower. Whereas the other thing, I don't even know if it had a horse but it might have been dog power on the ryobi <laughs> saw and bunny power it was, it was yeah it was bunny power and um and so i went to just cut one piece of wood so i could just say cut something it. you know and i took a pretty small piece of plywood i ran it through the blade it caught on the blade and shot 50 feet across mm -hmm. the driveway like almost hit me in the head on the way i just ducked and i was like Okay, I'm done for the day. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, there's no way I'm doing anything else. Like, I got it together, and I know that it cuts. That's horrible. And, uh, and then I never had an incident like that again. But um, when I sold my business, the guy who bought my shop, on the his first day in the shop, on that same saw, but now in a new location, you know, where I'd moved to, a real shop instead of a garage, um, he had a piece of wood fly off on him the wow. same way. But I had finished cabinets behind him. And it flew right through the back of a cabinet that was totally done, you know. Oh and it was like a $10 piece of material to fix it. But the entire cabinet had to be disassembled and put back together because the back was like grooved into the sides and stuff. I mean, it was... Curse it was, saw. Yeah, yeah, it was just a night. Well, no, it's like that saw is... right. If you're a beginner, it lets you know. Well, it's powerful, but do you know why that wood... And for people that don't understand this, the wood's coming towards you. It's coming... The, the blade is throwing it behind you essentially right do you know why that was ha happened to you and why it happened to your to your new i wasn't i'm assuming it was probably the same reason i have no idea what he was doing yeah. um in my case uh i mean i'm sure i didn't have enough solid enough of a solid like grip on the wood and i think the biggest reason it happened to me is that i was terrified of the saw yeah that's a bad you know scenario. like i mean using a power tool is like walking into the ghetto You've yeah. got to be confident yeah. you're going to survive. Yeah. Confidence helps. And if you're not, I mean, if the machine picks up on it, it's like a horse or a dog. Well, knowledge helps build your confidence, too. Knowing why a piece of wood would fly back at you, which yeah. is called kickback, which is basically the rising teeth at the backside of the blade contact the work and start to, and then traps it between the entire blade and throws it towards you. So in essence, one of the one of the basic scenarios is to make sure that your work is fully against the rip fence the entire time it's passing the blade. If it starts to creep away, the backside of the blade can grab it and throw it. That's what and, I was going to say. I yeah. thought happened, but then I didn't know, and I didn't yeah. want to say it out well, loud. Well, that's back to my question. Back to my question. Ask yourself why. Stop yeah. and say what happened. What was that? But yeah. 
a lack of knowledge can also stop you from going that far because you don't know. It's like, I don't know why that happened. It's just a really powerful, mean machine. Yeah, I just thought I got the wrong saw. I I was ready to return it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, today's, luckily, the biggest change, I think, in table saws, other than than, uh, they've got a a device now that senses flesh and will stop a blade um, when your finger touches it. And you may get a nick, but no, no more than a thirty-second of an inch deep. Wow! Which is a, a machine called a saw stop, which has a cartridge inside that just clamps the blade in milliseconds when it detects flesh um, touching it. Um, but the other thing that's happened besides that, and that's a really expensive saw and apparently well made. I've never used one, but um, is the introduction of proper splitters, which is a piece of metal that rides behind your saw blade. And that's what stops kickback because your wood, if it starts to drift away from the fence, your wood contacts the splitter instead of the back teeth that are rising out of the table and it stops it from pushing it and pulling it or forcing it back towards you. Um, The the new part of that is that the splitter, almost every saw you buy these days and even 10, 20 years ago or five years ago on the market comes with a splitter, but they're awkward. They get in the way. They have to be removed for non-through cuts like a stop dado or something like that. And they're awkward to do that. And the newer splitters are based on an older European design with the woodworkers there have been using for years, which is this curving piece of metal that when you retract the blade, it follows with the blade so you can remove, you know, usually it doesn't get in the way unless you're making certain specific cuts. And they've designed them now to get them in and out of the saw real quick with just a quick release type hardware instead of bolts and nuts. I would so think they would have that be independently height adjustable. Like, why wouldn't you be able to well, drop that down and out of the way? That's Some of them have that. It's more complicated on, on the machine. Sure. And I'm sure manufacturers like Delta and, and some of the bigger ones in Paramatic are, are cost conscious when it comes to stuff like that. If it's going to be another 10 bucks for each saw, it's beyond their <laughs> scope. you know. Right. So, But they have come a long way. And, and in the woodworking magazine world and publishing world, We've all been crying out for that for years to try and get manufacturers to take a look at their antiquated safety systems, especially their splitters. And they have, which is kind of good news. You know, it's a little late for you and me, but... Yeah, it's uh, definitely late for me, man. I'm out of the game. But again, it's knowledge, I think. Knowing how that kickback happens, knowing all the other potential dangers that you face when you turn and flip the switch on a table saw keeps you... Uh, you know in a more comfortable zone and then that builds your confidence and if you have the confidence for me it's like riding a motorcycle if i'm if i don't have confidence motorcycle riding is really really dangerous but if you have the confidence all of a sudden you're in the flow you're you're coring with smoothness and and you enjoy what's going on and when something happens you're way more prepared to deal with it like a piece of gravel on the corner or another car in your lane or what have you um, the confidence goes a long way, but the knowledge comes first Yeah. to gain that confidence. I will say that whenever I'm in a wood shop, like you and I did a project together recently, we did some stuff for my shelves. And yeah. When I walk into a wood shop, it's like the one time I feel like I know what I'm doing. Oh, that's nice. You know, it's, I mean, yeah. I did it for long enough. Like home. Yeah. It's just like yeah. I, I, everything else, I usually have a tendency to get just to the point of confidence with something and then I quit. Like I don't yeah. seem interested in fully mastering things, but I get highly competent yeah. and then I lose interest. And I don't know, you know, where in that gradient, which comes first, but it, that has been the pattern. And every 10 years I've changed careers, including now I'm kind of, you know, 
starting to look at uh, moving into this new world of stand-up comedy full-time, which is ridiculous Pretty to consider. Yoga eggs. Yeah. <laughs> um, at 46 years old, you know, I'm like, yeah, I think I'll become a traveling comic, you know, and live in hotels and my peer group will be 20. And that's <laughs> pretty much what I'm looking at. Uh, but I'm, I mean, I could, I was talking to a friend of mine. He's like, that's an interesting concept, like changing careers every 10 years. He pointed it out to me. Like he said, I've never known anybody to do that. Most people figure out what they want and they do it for the rest of their lives. And I always kind of admire people like that, like a lawyer or someone who gets good at something. That's what they do. They have their one hobby. Maybe they play guitar or golf or something and they're content. And that is not me. Yeah. I guess it's a personality issue, but it's also, and for me, I guess my personal personality goes opposite in that I, I want to keep at something on and on until not just until I get good at it, but so I can kind of flow with it, get beyond the good and, and be in that flow. But the other part of it that for me in woodworking is that there's no end to the learning. Yeah. It's constant for, because I do custom work, one off stuff. It's always something new and I have to invent a new way to do something or a new schedule or find wood that's not commonly available in my area. Or like I did this two days ago, I spent two days milling a bunch of of local sycamore with a friend um, with a chainsaw mill. Two days of just back-breaking work out on a windy plane off of (laughs) 70 near near, uh, Swannanoa. Uh, And it's rough work. You're handling planks that are like two to three hundred pounds and you're sawing them and then moving them and stacking them and then come back and sawing some more and there's dust everywhere in every pocket on your clothing there's a pile of sawdust um so it's hard on my body and in my age (laughs) it's not something i would want to start as a career but it's fun because it's i've done it before but i haven't done a lot of it to where i could be good at it so there's still that essence of, oh, I'm learning a lot here, you know, and I'm probably screwing up here and there, but I'm learning from it. And that fun factor is there as, as well as just making wood, you know, turning a log into lumber. is just awesome. Yeah. You know, it's the very beginning of my craft. So it's something that I like to do. It's just, it's not something I want to do a lot of because it's backbreaking. I feel that way about jointing a piece of wood. Yeah. Like I love taking a warped crooked piece of wood and you learn how to read it. And then you learn how to hold it and you learn how to make, you know, as efficiently as possible because yeah. you want to maintain as much finished product as you yeah. can, yeah. Um, you know, to get that thing flat, flat on one side and, and then straight. and then perpendicular to the edge so yeah. that you can, you know, cut it and plane it. And, yeah. and, and I never get tired of that. Yeah. You know, I remember telling, I loved it so much. I was like, I think I could go work in a lumber yard and like do this. And they were like, no. Two well, days. you could be the millman in a furniture shop. That's where you'd shine because... Cabin makers don't really deal with that. They deal with flat, ready-made pieces of plywood. And when they deal with wood, they're typically dealing with strips of wood, which can be then clamped to a nice, flat, straight piece of plywood. So they don't have to worry about being straight to begin with. Right. But furniture making always begins with milling, which yeah. is plain, pretty much joining on a joiner, which flattens and straightens edges, flattens faces, straightens edges, and then planing. And then sawing on the table saw or the band saw to get the stuff to, to uh, whip. Uh, and that starts every project that I start with is that way. And I love it. I look like you, yeah, I relished like getting a pile of wood. And it's a lot of work. It's heavy stuff at that point. They're usually long, big, thick planks in the beginning. Um, but taking that stuff and knowing that I'm going to spend the day just smoothing 
um, in terms of machine work, not no handwork involved, just machining everything down till it's the size that I need and of a certain flatness yeah. is, is very satisfying work. Well, I remember going back to your talking about, you know, just the learning and how you love the learning. And I remember when I was in your shop, the first time I was in your shop, I just was like, everywhere I looked was something that was exquisitely made, like your tool chest, yeah. which is just, I mean, that thing's a masterpiece. People who have, the Vanderbilts don't have anything as nice in the Biltmore house as your tool chest. Vanderbilt, Schmanderbilt. <laughs> so, I mean, but that's how beautiful that thing yeah. is. And and so I just remember when I got there, when we met that first day, you know, I was like looking around and everywhere I looked, I was, I was like, can I open this drawer? You know, I just, I, <laughs> and, every, and then every drawer had treasures in it and stuff. And I remember saying to you, I was like, I said, you know, it's, it's, and when it comes to woodworking, it's rare for me to meet someone that I can learn from. And um, and I don't mean that to sound obnoxious. I just did enough time that I, it's, I don't meet that many people whose skill level is that far beyond where mine was that I'm like, wow, I'm confronted with what I do not know right now. And your response was, really, it's too bad you feel that way. I feel like I can learn something from everyone. Uh, <laughs> and I felt, you know, this big. Well, that um, hits, but that hits because I think, I think you're expressing like-mindedness more than anything. Your, your mind works a lot like mine. We're both somewhat anal retentive. We like to be highly organized. I prefer we like the phrase to... detail oriented. Okay, DC, that's I like fine. The we anal can use. You myself. can be anal retentive. Uh, whatever. I'm going to be detail we're oriented. We're together on this, dude. <laughs> so, but we like we're meticulous. Yeah. You know, we're fussy about things. And then, so when you build a little drawer and it has some little curved dovetails in it, it's like, oh, this is a chance to just shine that meticulousness, you know, and make it pop. And and we're also visual artists. We like to see. What we're looking at, we would like to see stuff that has that degree of attention to detail, or anal attention. I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> anal attention. Anal attention. Right. Um, but yeah, that that piece, the till cabinet, was a labor of love that took. I like to say it took seven years because I was in that shop, Bill Draper's shop, building custom work for Bill, and I had a bunch of mahogany. Most of the till cabinet was mahogany with some curly maple and some ebony accents and stuff. And uh, I kind of I designed the cabinet, and I saw a friend of mine had built a similar cabinet with a it's the basic style is box style doors where you open up the doors and there's stuff inside the doors themselves as well as in the cabinet, and I love that idea of gaining that extra storage space in the doors themselves. So I designed it and cut out all the parts, and it sat for seven years. And five years after that, I left Bill and started my own business full time back in in uh, on Edel Farm in Princeton. And a couple of years after that, I was running out of work and I had this pile of beautiful mahogany and maple sitting there. And I said, screw this, I'm going to finish the damn thing. And I put it together, it took a couple of months to put it together, which was, you know, all the joinery and all the finishing and all that stuff. So it was, you know, I called it a seven year cabinet. And it was, you know, my, my wife at the time looked at me and said, why are you doing this? This is just so over the top. You know, you need to be working. And... I was doing it, I think, foremost because I it was a labor of love. It was a design exercise, which you know turns me on. But it also, it turns out over the years, it became a really good advertising piece because yeah. a customer would walk into the shop and they'd see that and say, "Oh!" And they'd be talking about something they wanted, and they wanted a style of joinery or a look. And I could point to aspects of the cabinet that had some of those details, like 
fine English style dovetails or hidden access panels and leather line, this and that, and tool holding ways to hold implements and tools. So it's been great. I don't regret the seven years or really the two or three months I put into it. So, no, I would think, I remember, you know, when somebody sees something like that and they're hiring you to, or considering hiring you to build something that they're going to care about and they see, wow, he put this much attention into his tool chest. Yeah, yeah. Imagine what he's going to do for yeah, me. Yeah. Like that's, that to me. Well, we're back to your original statement of, of how there really just aren't a lot of people out there who appreciate attention to detail and so that's the crux of it for me is that, that um, my best customers over the years are the people that I had one guy I built a library for a very detailed library with inlays and hidden drawers and all kinds of electronic and electrical plugs and this and that and he was fascinated by the idea of building this and every Saturday he came over he lived pretty close to me he came over with his son to my shop and he spent about an hour just hanging out to see how it was going. And he wasn't keeping tabs on me. He was trying to absorb the idea of making stuff, you know. And he wanted his son to get in on that, too, and, and experience this. And that was the kind of, of appreciation that made that kind of job worthwhile because he really knew what he was getting. Maybe he didn't know it to the degree I knew what he was getting, but he appreciated it. Um, and the customer has all the money in the world and you build them a table or, or you, maybe you never meet them. You ship a table out to Taos, you know, or right. out to uh, California somewhere or to Australia. Um, it doesn't carry that type of appreciation when you're, when you're done with the job. It's like, oh, it's just, you know, that's another, some money in the bank. I can pay my bills, but you know, I don't even know this guy and they don't seem to appreciate what they got. So it's tough. I mean, it's not just a matter about finding people who have money to build, to, to buy fine furniture, but it's really about finding people who appreciate good woodwork. And, you know, some poor people like that or middle-income people like that, they're willing to scrimp and save and, and not get the brand-new car because they'd rather have a piece that they know they can hand down to their kids and their family for generations. It's what I call heirloom furniture. It's not, you know, the chair from Ikea that's designed to last five years and then it's going to be thrown away and you got to buy a new one. I had a crazy kind of like bizarre karma story that happened like that. When I moved to L.A. Um, after college and I was living at home and my dad's like, you've got to do something to help cover the cost of having you in this house. He's like, you don't have to pay rent, but, you know, you have to pay for the $200 of food that you eat every month or something, you know, something. You can't just live here for nothing. So after, you know, getting jobs and I was an artist at the time. I was painting in the garage and and uh, that was a 10 year stint. Uh, I wish <laughs> uh, I think it lasted about six years. Um, and but I in order to support myself as an artist, I started uh, working as a woodworker because I had a job in this cafe and I would what happened was I would drink coffee and eat sugar until midnight and then I wasn't allowed to paint in the garage because there was a guest house next to it and the guy I would wake him up and so after cheers was over I wasn't allowed to paint anymore that was our thing like I would hear the song you know yeah. sometimes you want to go like the second time they played it and then I knew my night was Time's done up. and so when I was working at the cafe I would get home too late and then I was wired on caffeine mm. and sugar I'd stay up till five in the morning mm. watching movies back before there was Netflix or anything interesting to watch then I'd sleep till two and start work at four. So I wasn't painting. Yeah. And I hated this job. And I quit with almost no notice. You know, I mean, 
I would have stayed as long as they wanted, but they knew it wasn't working for anybody. So anyway, I got a job woodworking with this guy named Kurt Gary. He had a, a shop called Kurt Craft, both with a K. And a really nice guy, super temperamental. I mean, this guy would go from zero to screaming mm. over nothing, mm. you know, and it was terrifying. He's a little tiny guy, but he was just, you know, he was the boss. It was freaking terrifying when he would get this mad. I just, I, I mean, I almost developed an ulcer in the four days mm. that I worked for him. But he was an amazing craftsman, and um, there's a couple pieces to this story. One is that I had a sense, I was so new that everything he did looked like a miracle to me. Yeah, yeah. And so I, um, I thought that he did everything perfectly. And when I opened my own shop, I learned how to do everything perfectly. No nail holes. No. By the time I was done, I wasn't using nail guns. Everything was biscuited. Right. Everything was blind joints. I mean, they're biscuits instead of fancy stuff that you furniture makers do, which reminds me of... <coughs> Morrison <laughs> Tenant. Yeah, I'll never forget, as an aside, when I was looking at something and you're, you were building this uh, little table with drawers. Let's see if you remember this. And, uh, and you were locating the, the drawer face on the thing. And I said, you know, they make these really great drawer front adjusters. And he turned to me and said, you're such a cabinet maker. <laughs> I do remember. That was that the is, first time I felt insulted for being a cabinet that's maker. definitely, so. definitely a Jason Shoulder move. <laughs> well, you're, that was an Andy an Ray move. move. Are sure. you kidding? Like, sure. well, I'm used to going on a job site and the cabinet maker is like revered by yeah. the house carpenters. Yeah. And here I was, you know, like, thought I was bonding with you and they, you so insulted me not I mean you've been at, no, I mean it was, it was playful it wasn't mean but it was just I like remember. I'd never felt inadequate as a cabinet maker before let alone a reasonably skilled one so anyway um that was a very fun moment for me and our friendship uh so I had the sense that Kurt did everything perfectly and I made it a point to do everything perfectly and then I went back to his shop five years later mm, with knowledge would yeah and saw he had nail holes he had filler mm. he had joints that didn't line up i mean he still did really good work mm. and ultimately his skills continue to outshine mine but i realized like good enough is way lower than what i thought good enough was like my level of what was good enough was untenable for most people it just didn't need to be that good and even one of the best cabinet makers in town which he was still didn't do work that was that insanely detailed because yeah. you could you could never survive so anyway uh i was in there one day and he was working on something really phenomenal he had a hinge that like was on a wire that wove through the not a hinge a latch that was on a wire that wove through the whole cabinet and then unlatched so you could unlatch the cabinet doors from the side of the cabinet yeah, cool. i forget why it had to be like that yeah. but it did and it was for an architect named uh marmel and radziner they're a top architect and designer in LA and their client was Tom Ford who's also a designer and Tom Ford his family owned the house that I lived in in Santa Fe New Mexico and I lived there for five years when we moved to New Mexico the first two or three years we lived there we lived in this really cool old Adobe house um, and his family had owned that his grandmother or something when I was a kid he babysat for me hmm. and hmm. and so then fast forward, you know, I don't know, 15 years or something like that, this cabinet maker that I'm working for, at this point it's probably 20 years later, the cabinet maker that I used to work for is building things for Tom Ford. And Tom Ford had since moved back into that house. So when I went oh, back cool. to Santa Fe with my girlfriend at the time, 
we went to the house and his partner met us at the bottom of the driveway and wouldn't let us come any further because Tom was inside working. <laughs> and uh, and then when he told him who I was, he's like, oh my God, I would love to have seen him. I used to babysit that kid. But anyway, furniture that Kurt made in LA was now in my old house in Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. And this is like, I certainly didn't put that together. Like how in the world does that happen? And these were people, Tom and Marmon Radziner, those guys really did appreciate that level of craftsmanship. Yeah, yeah. And so Kurt was the guy who got hired yeah. to do that kind of stuff. And he was he was very fortunate in that, you know. Um, the idea, it's a sliding scale of knowing what's good and what's not so good or what's mediocre and what rises above. In other words, your sense of that is different from the next guy's. And that makes it it makes it a complicated issue when you're trying to design something that that uh, for somebody that wants a certain thing. And I think for me, it comes down to they're going to get what I not what I like, but they're going to get they're going to get Andy Ray. They're going to get me in that piece because here's my sliding scale. This is what I think is appropriate for this piece of furniture. Um, and it's interesting to use the word cabinet maker because one of my other mentors teachers was Frank, Frank Klaus, who's a master, well, he's a master cabinet maker. You can call him a master woodworker, but he would call himself a cabinet maker. And the difference here is that he was trained in Europe. He's Hungarian. His father was a, a cabinet maker. His father was a cabinet maker. And he came over here in his 20s and started his business and was very successful and is still successful today. Um, he subsequently has sold his shop, but he's now doing videos and teaching and this and that, and he's still building stuff. Um, but I remember, and I used to work for him for a little while in his shop. I was moonlighting from another wood shop. And I remember him, he, he had a bunch of guys that worked for him, all men, which is typical. Um, and somebody was making, a customer was making a comment. I forget how the scene went, but basically Frank turned around in very Hungarian accent and very Hungarian vehemence. He's a very strong-willed and strong-spoken man. Um, said, you know, he was talking about, the customer was talking about one of his workers and Frank puffed up his chest and said, he's a cabinet maker. He's not a woodworker. He's a cabinet maker. And for Frank, that meant he could do anything. And when he meant cabinets, he meant not kitchen cabinets, not plywood, but corner cabinets with arched doorways and inlays of satin wood and all kinds of fancy stuff and hand-cut dovetails. So that's what a cabinet maker was and is to a European, old European woodworker. So that's what you meant when you said that about me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm American, dude. I lived in Europe, but no, I'm sorry. I'm gonna, I've been I'm gonna to Europe. Give, but it's, an, it's the American, so I don't call myself a cabinet maker because it's in this country, it's not the same thing. It's, it's a step down on that sliding scale in terms of performance or execution or, or the end product. Um, cabinet making involves lots of plywood for the most part Um, and it's a good way to make a living it's a really hard way to make a living the way Frank did it but Frank was he was hobnobbing with all the big people in New York City and he did some stuff for the West Coast too but he was really in touch with a lot of the top designers and architects and and millionaires in in his area he was in Pluckham, New Jersey not far from Princeton and a stone's throw from the city in New York. Um, so he, he was, and still is, what I would call one of the most successful woodworkers I know because he bought his house, 
built a building behind it and has a swimming pool, has two kids that he put through college. Um, you know, all his bills are paid and had a, built a shop and, and subsequently sold it as he retired in his you know, later years. Um, so I don't know what the measure of his success is or, or maybe how he became that, but I think part of it was Frank's attitude of, of his sliding scale was higher than mine and one that I aspired to, that, that everything he did was excellent and there were no corners to be cut. Now, that's not to say that there aren't corners to be cut every day in terms of getting it out the door, but you don't make that corner, you don't cut the corner where the customer will then uh, see that corner. You know, if it's a corner that's cut, it's something that no one ever knows about. It just gets the work done faster. Um, so it's possible, but he's the rare exception in, in my world of, of successful woodworkers. Um, and I think part of it is what Frank would say is that if he got to be known as anything, he got to be known as expensive. So, and I remember hearing friends talk about him that didn't know that I knew him. Oh, that Frank Claus, he's really expensive. And that's, it's kind of a disheartening thing for me because I'd love to build furniture for my friends, but at the same time, it's a realistic view because that winnows out all those people coming in to look for something, you know, a table that's a $5,000 dining table and they want it for $500. Yeah. And not that I can't do that, I can, but it, it's not what I'm aiming for. It's not my scale that I strive for. Yeah, I had a friend, one, I have a bunch of furniture downstairs that I built. It's all for sale because I, I built it just to sell it. But it's neat stuff and everything's different and it's all part of this whole Friday furniture idea, which remind me, I'll explain it to right. you. And uh, and a friend of mine wanted to buy, she said, I, don't you have, I saw you have like a little piano bench. I wanted to put something like that in my house. She has a rental house. And I said, all right, well, let me figure out what I was selling it for and so I think it was I was selling it for four fifty, and she's a friend of mine. I said you can have it for three hundred, you know. And she said, "Oh yeah, no, I can't afford that." And I was like, "Well, what what was your expectation?" Yeah. I mean, she said, "I don't know. I just I don't I know I can't afford three hundred. I said, "Okay, well, I mean, it's a handmade piece. That's probably about what I have in it, <laughs> you know." Yeah. And um, so I was really just liquidating it, as far as I'm concerned. But I mean, I, no big deal. I mean, we didn't have a long conversation about it. But it's just this. Thing that people don't understand that if something's handmade i mean it takes time you know yeah. and i remember this guy wanted me to customize some stuff that ethan allen had and he's like i saw the stuff at ethan allen but i i wanted to do this and not that and that and not this and can you do that for me and i said yeah sure and we did it together we went to ethan allen together and you know looked at their designs and then took the elements and made what he wanted and then when i gave him the price he's like well for that much i could just get it at ethan allen <laughs> It's that I underbid it because this should be yeah. more than Ethan yes. Allen. I mean, yes. you're yes. getting a custom made handmade thing, yeah, handmade thing. item. And he just thought that because he hired some guy in a with a garage shop that it should be cheaper than a store. And yeah. Frank, the, the guy walked into Frank's shop one day and said, and he looked at this chair and said, "Oh, I, you know, I'd like that chair. How much is that chair?" And Frank gave him a price, and the guy was shocked at the price of one chair. It was you know thousands. Not even hundreds. And he said, well, and he was kind of bald. He was coming from New York, you know. He's kind of ballsy and pushy. And he said, well, what if I what if I order 10? Will you give me a better price? And Frank at this point was pissed off. And rightfully said, I'm going to charge you more for 10. Because at that point, 
we're doing this over and over and, and it's all handwork and we're going to get bored to tears and it's going to cost us more. So no, you're going to pay more if you want 10. Wow. So there's, there's some truth to that. It's not just a gut reaction. I think it's about the fact that this is not factory work. We don't set up and just ream off millions of board feet of wood. We set up our machines and make a cut because it's very specific to that piece of furniture. And then we break down that machine and make a new setup for a whole nother yeah. scenario. And it costs time. It takes us time to do that, to do it by hand. In a factory, there's one machine that does the same thing over and over, day in, day out, 365 days a year. And that just doesn't happen when you're making it by hand. Whether or not you're using machines or hand tools isn't even the issue. It's just that it's handmade, meaning we're figuring out how to do every little thing all the time. And it takes time. And time needs to be charged for. Yeah. Um, I wish there was an easier way. I wish we could all make furniture for the masses, but um, that experiment's been tried and it's pretty much failed by some English makers way many, many moons ago who wanted to do the same thing. Um, so it's just, I get stuck with that. I really am in a point in my career where I'd love to be able to be like the village woodworker, you know, your kids need a new stool and Farmer Joe needs a milking stool and this guy needs a bed and um, and it doesn't happen. And, and at the same time, I'm committed to the idea of making really fine things because I think if our world doesn't have that, we're losing something. If we're going to strive for mediocrity to where everybody can have the same thing, then what's the point? And that's... You know, there's a, there's something good about that. There's a survivalist mentality about that. We can all get along and survive if we all have something that's common and available. And and if we have really fine things, then we're feeding the 1%. But I think we're also feeding the idea of art in the world. And, and in the long run, art saves lives, in my book. You know, just having been out there doing something that you think is the best that you can do um, breeds a, a sense of wonder and beauty and a desire to have a nicer world than the one we live in. And there's something really good about that to me. It's the art side of me, the artist side, which is really my background. I remember when uh, my daughter was born, um, you know, her mom and I, we weren't planning to have this child. But when, you know, we found out we were pregnant and, you know, we spent some time reevaluating our relationship and decided to live together and, you know, try to make it happen as a family. And it worked for as long as it worked. We, had, we were together for six years. And it was really important to me that um, we lived in this house. I mean, the house is really beautiful. It's really homey. But I really wanted my daughter more than anything to grow up around my furniture. I wanted her to be, and my artwork's all over the walls, you know, and artwork from other people that I've bought who mm -hmm. I used to represent, you know, it's not like I have, not like they paid me in paintings, you know, I invested in these artists yeah. if I like yeah. their work, but most of the stuff in the house is stuff I built, and I really wanted her to grow up from the very beginning being around things that were made by hand and made by me. By humans. Yeah, and knowing that, like, oh, that's a thing, like... Yeah. making something and having it be beautiful and you were touching on this earlier functional and you know it has to be both of those things like woodworking that's one of the reasons I was it was cool to evolve from painting for, right. to woodworking for me there were a few things about that the utility um, aspect yeah I mean, that was responsible for more 
yeah. with a painting you're just responsible for what it looks like and that the and that you don't mix the paints in the wrong way that you know they fall off you can't put water on top of oil or that'll it'll peel once you get past that it's mostly aesthetic but with the furniture it's got to look nice it's got to work and it's got to last so there's a lot going on that, yeah. that has to happen yeah. and uh so i just really you know to your point you've been making for you know a little bit uh, it was it was very important to me that my daughter grow up in a house filled with handmade things. You know, her mom's more into antiques, which is fine. I mean, their family collects antiques, and there's a virtue to that. I don't love antiques myself for a few different reasons, but um, I said, well, you know, we can have some, but I I want to make sure she's mostly around stuff that I made. And so I, you know, my dresser, she has a dresser that I made in her room. I mean, for an eight year old to have a five thousand dollar dresser is ridiculous, but that's what that thing's worth or maybe more I don't even know sure. it, you know sure. but it's like you know and when she's mad she slams the drawers I'm like you can't slam those drawers well, she's learning about allowed, that too you're not allowed to have an 8 year old tantrum on a you know adult dresser <laughs> save that for the closet you've got stuff in the closet you can bang around but uh, yeah I mean so it's true I mean she's learning some appreciation for that but I remember that being really important to me what is that what is Sula learning what does it give her in life this idea of being of growing up around handmade and human-made things. Well, you know, we had a really funny conversation. I have this whole series on Facebook. I don't know if you've seen it called oh, yeah. Sula Said. Oh, yeah, I love it. And love it. I have these conversations awesome. with her. And one of the very first ones, maybe the first one that I wrote down and published, was, you know, she said, you know, did you build this house? And I said, no. I, I said, I didn't build the house. I said, I built the furniture in the house. And she's like, so were you Bob the Builder? And I said, I'm not Bob the Builder, but I was, you know, Jason the Furniture Maker. And she said, so were you my daddy? And I said, well, I wasn't your daddy then. And I didn't know I was going to be your daddy one day, you know. Um, uh, but I'm your daddy now. And she's like, you didn't really know who you were back then, did you, uh, daddy? <laughs> and that's, I was like at three or four years old. And that was when I knew, like, I had this kid who was putting things together. I mean, it was such a profound comment because I certainly didn't know who I was back then in, in the much more self-actualized yeah. way uh, and the lack thereof. So. And since then, I, I imagine, too, that all of us become more attuned to looking for it's not looking for handmade furniture. It's looking for stuff that's beyond and outside and more local than the corporate world and the corporate factory and, and the made in China and the made in Taiwan scene that we've had now for years and years. And there seems to me be a sense of people wanting to get back in touch with their roots, you know, which is local, local food, local furniture, anything. Um, that doesn't mean it has to be here in Asheville, but it's still something that's, that's made and created by a group of people and not a corporation and not by strictly by machines or, or designed by machine. Um, so which, which is good. I think it's a great thing to have. It's just hard to, for me, it's like juggling that idea with the idea of, of getting work. You know, come over to my shop, I'll show you handmade, but it's gonna be expensive. It's gonna yeah. cost some money. Um, but I think we're closer to that than we ever have been in terms of people wanting something that has value beyond the moment you know it's not this instant gratification thing it's this long-term investment in your life in terms of something that you're buying or acquiring i was hanging out with one of my uh comment friends the other night and 
and his door, someone knocked at the door and he got up to get the door and he put his foot down too close to his chair and it snapped the cross rails on the chair. And he's like, well, that's what I get for buying stuff at Ikea, you know, and he could replace that chair tomorrow with the exact same chair yeah. and no one would know. Yeah. And, and it really was, I mean, that wood looked like, I mean, I don't know, ash or some kind of thing. It looked like it was, it was, it was wood. It wasn't particle board, but it kind of looked like it was just pressed together to look mm. like wood. I mean, it was very, very seemingly lacking in, in uh, integrity and structure. Yeah. Um, well, um, it's economics. They design, the big companies are designing stuff on the, it's a bean counting situation where they, they can shave an eighth inch of wood from something and save a hundred bucks over the course of you know running a thousand pieces so they do it um and the, the average chair is just not going to last more than five years yeah. it's going to fall apart one way or the other because it's that's one of the pieces of furniture that gets the most abuse anyway it's hard it's and in, my hat's off to chair makers it's a it's not something i really have, have gotten into because it's a really exacting craft trying to design something it's not only beautiful and ergonomically comfortable but strong enough and at the same time light enough in its members to be successful visually and not fall apart in, you know, in a hundred years or more. Or if they design it right, which is another thing that I got from, from George Nakashima is to, is to make it so that when it needs repair, it's easily repairable. It's not some um, epoxied together piece of stuff that is impossible to take apart and re-glue or repair you know and add it strengthen up the joints or whatever it might be and that's part of design too and that's that's kind of planned obsolescence in a way from factory furniture where uh, once it starts to go it goes it's gone there's no yeah. way you can, nothing you can do with it I mean I, I you know Ikea my friends are always like oh I'm going going I I'm going to Ikea. Do you want anything? I'm like, I don't ever want anything from Ikea. The only thing I ever bought from there were the furniture pads that you'd bang onto the bottom of a stool or uh -huh. a chair so they don't scratch your floor. Um, and they had some hangers that I bought. I was like, those are the only two things I'm willing to buy don't from that Don't tell anybody. I've got an Ikea bookcase in my house and I love it. <laughs> you just told you everybody. You didn't hear that. Nobody heard that. <laughs> yeah, we won't broadcast it's, But, it, you know, there are things. Ikea has always fascinated me. I, wonder, I remember they first opened a store in, in King of Prussia. And outside of Philadelphia, and, and uh, we went at the time, and we were just fascinated by walking the aisles, all this stuff. But I look at it as a furniture maker with a furniture maker's eye, so I'm looking for things that are designed well where they can withstand certain treatments. And you know, most of their kitchen work, forget it. But you could take their kitchen boxes, put them in your house, and then cover them up with handmade wooden doors and drawers, and you might have a really nice system. Um, but in general, yeah, it's, I'm not a big fan of particle board and, and, uh, and thin veneers and, and uh, Scandinavian softwoods. It's, I mean, everything from Ikea is inherently thinner than it ought to be yeah, because it's yeah. all going to be shipped over from Sweden. Yeah, yeah. And so it's everything's five-eighths instead of three-quarters. Right. And, and yeah. it just, inherent, <clears throat> inherent in that is it's just not going to last. And, uh, and the prices should give you a clue as to what's going on. That's where the general public gets gets hoodwinked. I think they, you know, they think, oh, well, it costs fifty dollars for a chair, fifty five dollars for an armchair, right? And you know, I got buddies down the road, or they're making chairs for three thousand dollars, and they're really nice chairs, you know, and they're super comfortable, and they'll last for generations. Um, and something that woodworkers can can help with and most of them 
well, there's there's a problem with a lot of woodworkers and especially young ones and in this area too because we're we're just brimming with woodworkers in the Asheville area is that they'll they'll um, talk to a customer and and talk about a piece and then give them a price and they're basing that price on the fact that they think the customer will buy it at that price and they're basing it also on the fact that they know they're going to make five to ten dollars an hour if they get that price and they're happy to do it because it gets them work gets their name out there and and they're and they're busy and i understand then i don't want to i don't want to take away work from anybody but what that does is it it's educating our customers to expect the fifty dollar chair and that's a problem i don't think you you go to a, a country where you have a lot more handmade work like France or Belgium or Germany or almost any European country where there's a, a history of the craft and nobody expects a $50 chair. If they do, they know exactly what they're buying. They're buying a chair that's going to last for a few years. Right. Um, and that's fine. But, you know, this customer is not expecting it. They're expecting, you know, this is going to be a really nice chair for 50 bucks. And, you know, and then they come to my shop and they say, well, here's this design. We got this from, you know, another woodworker and what do you think and how much? And I look at it as well, you know, it's a good design and it's probably a, a $600 chair. And they walk out saying, God, that guy's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and they, unfortunately, they don't come back because they're not educated about the cost, of, the real cost of furniture. Yeah. Um, and I think that idea can be translated across the board in all kinds of stuff that we make and sell. And, and you know, not just artists, but any kind of craft, even machinists. So educating the public, I think, just being realistic about what it takes to make a specific piece of furniture. And that's simple. It's a matter of time and materials. You sit down. You get, if you have any experience, you gauge your time. This is going to take me 45 hours, and there's going to be $600 worth of materials in it. You know, and you've got a price. And maybe you, maybe you put 10 or 20% on top of that to try and keep your business floating and make a profit. And you get this price that sounds horrible to a lot of young furniture makers because it's really, really high yeah. to what they expect. Um, and it's a tough nut to sell. You know, I think over time we educate our customers by being realistic about the prices of, of what it takes to make furniture. So I thought we'd switch gears a little bit if you're amenable to that. Um, we've talked profession and I, I thought it might be nice to uh, talk about our personal lives a little bit to the degree that that's comfortable feel free to you know not go anywhere you don't want to go sure. um but uh you know wh what's your situation now are you married were you married i mean tell me a little bit about i mean how what's you moved to Asheville. situation <laughs> what's your situation is that a boy? good is that a good pickup line that is. what's it's your awesome. situation yeah what's the situation <laughs> it's like this um I, we lee and i my ex she, I'm actually still married, technically, but she's definitely an ex. Um, we moved here with our two kids in... Well, in 99, we came down to try and move and find a house. And uh, it was impossible. And it's, you know, Asheville's only gotten worse since then. And it took us a year to find a really weird house. Nice house, but it was weird out in Leicester. Pretty far out. Surrounded by Baptists. And so we moved down, and I made it, at the time I was freelancing, I'd, I'd uh, been working at American Woodworker Magazine at Rodale Press, and we lived outside of the Allentown area in Len Hartsville, which is in Berks County, the county over from Lehigh County. 
<clears throat> and I'd freelance for a year and, and had started writing my first book for a publisher for Taunton Press and done some other freelance work, writing type of work, not a whole lot of woodwork. And we wanted to move. Lee was from Mississippi originally. I'm originally from the north, from New Jersey and Pennsylvania area, although I spent eight years of my young life as a, um, on an island called Beckwe in the West Indies. I uh, went to boarding school in Barbados for a couple of years and then went to boarding school in England for four years to finish up schooling. But anyway, um, we figured something mid-south would be really cool. And uh, I, I didn't have any aspirations to move into the deep south, into Louisiana or Mississippi or any of those states. It's a little too southern for me. But I was more than ready to move from the northeast. So we took a trip, probably in 98 or so, um, through North Carolina. And she had some family here in uh, Kannapolis, her, kind of a race car family, and uh, a sister living in the Durham area. So we visited there in Kannapolis. And um, as soon as I got into North Carolina, I hated it. <laughs> it, was, it was just flat, scrubby pines, yellow pines, and lots of Baptists. Um, so you must have been in the eastern part of the state. Yeah, this yeah. is all Durham and up to Charlotte, you know. And a friend said, you really should get up to Asheville. And I'd heard that from other friends over the years. And I'd made a, a, an appointment to visit a box maker here. So we drove up after visiting other people in the flatlands, as I call them. We drove up the hill. And as soon as we both got to Asheville, we both were just enthralled by the sense of, of the town and the mountains and the geography and, and the artistic sense that was going on and said, yeah, this is the place, you know, let's move here. And it took us a year to get here to find a house. And I also landed, I was dead set against just coming here and trying to look for work. So one of the tenants that I've been told that I tell people since is if you come into Asheville, bring a job. So I did, I hooked up with Lark Books, who was then in town at that point in a, a uh, publishing venue on College Street, in the corner of College and Rankin. And I said, here's my experience, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, oh, great, a woodworking editor and a male, like a man, instead of all the women that are in here at Lark Books. This will be great. I said, well, I'll give you two years. Um, and they said, well, you give us two, you give, if you give us two years, we'll give you two years. You know, we'll make a commitment for two years. I said, that's cool. So we made the move and I, I started at Lark Books. Um, and after two years, it was just fine for me to move on. Yeah. Uh, very uh, matriarchal environment, um, fun, but not. Uh, uh, it, I basically came from a really hot, highly organized publication or publishing house, which is Rodale Press, which has since changed since my day there, but uh, and moved to Lark Books, which is very parochial and and the woodworking side of things was full of flaws and all kinds of weird stuff going on. And so I was hired basically to come in and start the woodworking division and get a whole bunch of woodworking books out. And, uh, and it was a struggle for me to do that. We, we published a bunch of books. I wrote another book while I was there. In fact, I finished up my Taunton book while I was a Lark employee, which was kind of weird for them, but fine for me. Uh, and after two years, I said, that's enough and moved on and, and, uh, and just started my own woodworking business in my house in Leicester. 
had a nice walkout basement at the time and started on a third book at that point. Um, which for me involves, it's not really so much writing as it is organizing a book in terms of chapters and headings and then um, doing all the photography myself, which is a huge investment of time. Um, and then really making a bunch of woodworking props to show what I need to show in photos. So it's, it's an exercise in woodworking without actually making anything when you're making a woodworking book, unless you're doing something that's from start to finish like a bunch of projects. But basically the books that I've written are, are technique books. So they involve, you know, taking shots of techniques and then you've got all these pieces of wood lying around at the end of it that don't amount to much of anything, <laughs> which is kind of disheartening. It's it's not making furniture, it's making, it's making a book, which is different, which is good too. So anyway, that went on for a while until we decided to get the hell out of that house and we bought a house in Beaverdam in a really beautiful area at the end of Beaverdam and uh, we were there for about six years and at one point I had an architect friend design a woodshop for me on my property but in the interim I met uh, well I was already met up with uh, Gabe Alcott who is a and continues to be one of Asheville's most premier woodworkers he's been voted I think three times the most favorite woodworker in the Mm -hmm. uh, Mountain Express poll every year. And he introduced me to Jan Durr, who was working on the top floor of the Film Mechanic Studios, the Film Mechanic Building, um, and in 3,000 square feet. And then Gabe moved up there and was working with him as well. And I said, oh, I'd rather be, you know, involved in a community sense and scene rather than stuck out in my wood shop, my beautiful little wood shop in Beaverdam. I'm going to, I'm going to, forego building a shop and just move in with these guys, which I did. And he, we were all there for four or five years at the very end of which, um, I was there. I had the whole space by myself at the end, but the building, like everything going on in the river arts district and in Asheville in general, the prices kept going up and Jolene and Mitch mechanic had to raise the rent. So I had to move on. Um, what happened next? Well, then I moved, I should preface this by saying I'm in my 14th shop now. So this is probably my, and I think I've had seven different studios in Asheville itself. But anyway, from the film mechanic studios, which I call the PMS, because <laughs> it's been run by women for years. Um, I moved to an awesome location on Lexington, South Lexington and Brown's Auto, which is now a glass oh, studio. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And that was just the sweetest shop. I paired up with a buddy, Aaron Murray. And in the back end of the, we didn't have the whole building. The back end was a, another glass artist um, doing his work. And that lasted a couple of years. Um, and then it got to be where after 23 years of marriage to Lee, I decided it just wasn't working for me. And if it wasn't working for me, I don't, think it's going to work for my kids uh, and that was a tough decision um, I decided to separate and that was years of agonizing to go through that and through therapy as well um, and so we I kind of did this trial separation of a couple months to see how it would go I moved out and in the interim of that my son who was then 19 Zai Ray um, crashed his motorcycle into a car that pulled out in front of him on 
Beaverdam Road, a big suburban, mm-hmm. and he died on the road. Oh, and subsequently, his mom, we had a wonderful wake and a funeral. We had, I had his body home for three days in his bed, which was very cool. Um, we had two Buddhist ladies showed up that managed all of that through the hospital and what have you. And we had a wonderful service for him. <coughs> and then uh, basically, Lee wigged out on me and kind of went crazy. And um, was having a really, I think was already having a really hard time with the separation and um, for me to like just trying to get a hold of my girl, you know, we switched back and forth with my, um, at that time, 12 year old daughter, Shade. And, you know, I'd show up to pick her up and she wouldn't get out of the car and she'd have Zai deliver Shade to me and it became pretty tense for her. And after Zai's death, I think it just, she broke down. Um, and she basically started poisoning Shade against me as a father and, and called me a bad father and all this stuff mm. in front of her. And so that kind of split and shut the doors to my family, which was, at that point was just my daughter. And that was almost seven years ago and I haven't seen or heard of, from my daughter since. Mm. So um, I'm hoping someday she'll just kind of wake up and kind of ask me what's up because, you know, she's never had the chance to talk to me about any of that. But in the meantime, you know, I've tried not to be, I didn't take the aggressor route of hiring a lawyer and try and fight uh, for my daughter because I felt all that would do would be to harm her mom, and I didn't want to do that. And I hired media, a mediation lawyer, and I also went to the actual court system twice to work with their mediation people, and none of that worked. For various reasons, but a lot of it because the Asheville court system is pretty fucked. Um, so I've tried calling her, but I don't have a phone number. I don't have a address. I think they've moved to somewhere outside of Mobile, Alabama, according to a friend who uh, who saw them on Facebook. But other than that, I've no contact with her. So it's been rough as a Family Guy. It's been hard, but. Um, juxtaposed with all that and probably about a month or so before Zai passed I met Jessica who was living in Asheville and we totally fell in love and we've been together for almost seven years Hmm. so uh, she's just kind of the opposite of my ex it's very loving very unassuming kind um, not much of an ego so it's just kind of the tonic that I need in a relationship. So we still love each very, very, love each other very much, and we love spending time together. And she loves walking in the woods. And we both don't make a whole lot of money, so we're similar there. <laughs> and she's used to living poor, so that's been a good lesson for me. Um, and she's got a great brother who lives in town. He's a landscaper, Josh Joshua Reeves. And her mom is up all the time from Greenville, North Carolina, visiting us. So it's been good. That's been kind of a lifesaver for me. And it's kept me out of the really dark woodwork that was coming after me, you know, after the whole family debacle. Um, what else can I say about that? You need to interject at this point. Okay. Well, I, I would just, I mean, I wouldn't dream of... It's a sad tale. Of, uh, well, it's okay for things to be 
okay for things to be real and yeah. and yeah. and I mean it's incredibly sad. I mean I have an eight year old daughter and yeah. I have a um, at the moment increasingly uh, dissonant relationship with her mom and I'm hoping we're all hoping that that we get through this. Mm. Um, mm. But we're pretty good about not talking smack about the other parent. I mean, just when you said that about happening, I mean, that's like, I mean, that's that's the worst thing a parent can do. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of horrible things a parent can do. One of the worst things a parent can do in the split family situation is to talk trash about the other parent. I mean, you just, yeah. Yeah. Um, it doesn't help the kid at all. And it's listening to you tell the story. I mean, it's just, I cannot imagine a world where I didn't have my daughter, you know. I don't mean to drive that home. No, it's true. To you. It's I mean, true. I just can't imagine. It's it. just personalities, you know. I'm just one of those types of people that I can't do that. I mean, I'm, I think that's what makes me a father. I couldn't do anything to hurt my kids, and it's. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I have. We all do things as parents oh, that, that inadvertently hurt our kids, but it's because we're unaware for the most part. We're not doing it intentionally. But when vindictiveness comes into play, that's like you need to just keep your keep your emotions in check because if they're going to affect your kids, that's you're you're hurting your kids. Yeah. Uh, and I can't. Yeah, that's just a whole other scenario for me. I can't deal with that. But I think that happens a lot. I think you know. Since then, I've I've of course I've read and researched and met tons of people that have been in similar situations to mine. It's not uncommon. Um, and it's also very common for not just the general public, but even the court system, especially in Asheville, to and child services in Asheville to side with the mother in terms of, of what's going on. And I've seen my brunt of that in yeah. terms of how I've been treated as like a derelict dad, you know, and all kinds of stuff. Um, she took me to court for violence at one point. I've never hit a person in my life. The worst thing I've ever done was probably kick a fridge and, <laughs> and stub my toe. Um, and her woman lawyer was there to help bolster her argument. And the woman judge showed up and I thought, oh my God, I'm so screwed. And she listened to Lee's statement and her lawyer's statement and both both of those, she told them to keep it down, please, no shouting. And she listened to my statement, and she looked up and said, there's no violence here. Mm-hmm. Stick around if you want a copy of the report, and I didn't. But it's common. It's a very common Well, that's got to be hugely liberating, though. I mean... It is. I mean, it's, I mean, but it was just a ploy by her to try and, you know, put me down. I think what she was trying to do was distance everything about me from her. Yeah. The, the ironic part is she's got a house full of furniture... That she essentially stole because my house in Beaverdam, I had to break into my house three times to try and get stuff that I needed to live. I was living down in Old Fort, a place called Weaseltown, for a year with Jessica. And uh, and then it was all gone. And she packed it all up and $35,000 pantry and chests of drawers, you name it. Um, some of that stuff came back to me years later, a few years ago, I think because she felt she had more stuff that was had me on it and in it right. and she didn't want it around but none of the good furniture came back <laughs> <laughs> so it's yeah it's a sad situation it's just it's just 
it's selfishness. It's thinking, not thinking beyond your own self and your own. We all hurt and we're all in pain. All of us are struggling to survive. Every single one of us, even Donald Trump. But to think in terms of, sorry, to think in, you know, in terms of that and be selfish about it and not think of your neighbor at the same time is just selfishness. I don't abide by it. I mean, there's, it's not that easy to be. Not you don't have to be selfless, but it's not that easy. It's not hard to be compassionate and and caring and have some type of sensitivity to the people around you. Yeah, you know, it's just called empathy. So there's a certain psychotic aspect to this, I think, in a medical term. Um, and the therapists and psychiatrists that I've talked to agreed with me about that whole situation. So it's been rough. It's tough for me because it just it really takes the wind out of your sails in so many ways. And uh, really two things keep me going, Jessica, number one. And my woodworking, my love of just undying love of woodworking keeps me sane. I get into the shop, I get enthralled by, you know, I'll spend six hours cutting dovetails all day long and be totally absorbed in it. And then I might stop and look up and remember my other life and have a moment of sadness, but mm. then I can get back to work or, go hang with my girl well it's key to have that I mean yeah it's a, I mean yeah. some people don't they don't have an yeah. anchor yeah and that sounds like you've got two yeah. which is nice yeah. um, one waiting at home and yeah. one waiting well, I don't know if she's waiting <laughs> oh she <laughs> but, is yeah. no, he's, no she is she's that kind of person yeah I do the same for her I'd wait for her yeah yeah yeah, yeah I mean when I think about the failures in my life, I think uh, I think the longest list of failures are my relationships. There's <laughs> yeah, just, just an endless yes. number of them, you know. I mean, well, and when I met this lady, the first one, I knew. It's not like I didn't know. I knew there was trouble. That if I ever crossed her, there would be trouble because that was her personality. And I also, in a funny way, I knew that she wasn't my cup of tea, but mm. the that I'd get on a ride that I'd never ridden before. And that really drew me in. She was from a different area, you know, she's from a wealthy family in Mississippi. She had, you know, drive and she had a different way of being. She was very anti, we were a bunch of artists living on Edel Farm in Princeton, New Jersey when she showed up and she was just the opposite of all of us, you know. It's like, oh, that's interesting to me. And, you know, in retrospect, which is the, the sharpest form of clarity, but it doesn't do you any good. It, I can look at that and say, that's not the kind of woman that I'm looking for. I'm looking for really kind of a plain Jane. I call Jessica plain Jane sometimes. She hates it and I'm sorry, but it's true. It's, it's like she's not looking to break the world record. She's not focused on money. She's not focused on fame or ego or notoriety. She's just, you know, she's a regular person. Yeah. Um, beautiful and, and beautiful inside in and, in and out so you know if I could look back and say ah if I was 28 or 29 again you know I'd have different priorities but that's how we learn you know we learn again learning from failing this was a big one um, I just wish it didn't take so long it took me too long to learn that one yeah time you mean the 23 year period? Yeah. 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 That's a long time. Yeah. That's most of your life in a relationship. Yeah. That's a long time. I know. I mean, I, you know, my relationship, we were together for six years. We've been apart for two and, and 
Um, I don't regret any of the choices. You know, there are moments that I regret all of the choices, mm. but in the in the real calm sense, you know, I don't. I mean, um, we have an amazing daughter, and her mom's a terrific person, and she's a great mom, and I've learned a lot about parenting from her. I mean, there's a lot of good there. Um, but there are moments that I'm like, wow, you know, I mean, I was 38 when it started, you know, and now I'm 46, and it's like, it's harder to pick up from where I left off. Yeah, yeah. And uh you know i'm but that's almost that's regret which doesn't mean that's going to be i i'm not thankful for or at least i'm not appreciative of the choices i've made in the past it's just that i regret you know i can say the same thing except it's changed for me because so much of my sin the scene has changed for me with losing a kid really losing two kids yeah that's the thing and a wife you know and a wife that goes crazy about it and and she basically, I became ostracized in the whole community that I knew mm. in Asheville. Most of it centered around Evergreen School, charter school, um, because they were all my friends. And she was a teacher there. And I just, you know, I felt like I lost the support of everybody around me, uh, which has made it hard for me to stay in Asheville, to be honest. It's, it's not the place it was when I moved. It was the place that I was moving to when I moved here. Right. It's changed. And it doesn't change at all in that regard. It's just, for me, it's changed. Or I've changed. So, I mean, I'd like to, it sounds petty, but, you know, if I could, I'd be like, I don't, I wish my kids weren't born. I'd never met her. That's, you know, it's really rough when I hear myself say that and I feel yeah. like, damn it, you know, why did I go down that route? But then, the, you know, that's like dark times. And the, the worldview for me is we, we just, you're you're not going to go anywhere unless you make a decision. I made a decision. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to hang out with this girl for a long time and we have kids and it's going to be awesome. Yeah. You know, that's not a bad decision. And I did love her. I, um, I don't still love her, but that's, and I think that's not probably the most common emotion you get from divorced couples. You, you know, you probably say, yeah, I still love her, but, but this is, is changed for me Yeah. to where, it's, I wouldn't say hate. It's just that I just, oof, I get this. For someone to do that to their kids is just beyond me. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a revulsion. So it's, it's, I guess I'm always, I always feel like whatever decision I've made in my life and continue to make, I stand by it. Like it's, yeah, I make it because that was the decision I made at the time. And that's good. And I usually, you know, I make good decisions for the most part. So I'm, I'm not an idiot. I'm not getting into trouble all the time. I, you know, really get into any trouble, unfortunately. So um, <laughs> I'm too old to get into trouble. You know, looking back, it's easy to say I shouldn't have done that. But that's not how life works. Life yeah. works by doing it right now. Whatever you decide now is what your history becomes later. And we all have history. And so I'm fine with that. It's just is what it is. And the fact that Zai died, I, when that happened, I remember being surrounded by friends and saying, you know what? I took one for the team because somebody always has to take one for the team. It happens every day. People's kids do die young, you know, and it happens. And if you're not on that team, you're lucky. But I just happen to, you know, be the guy. Team humanity. So, who's well, the, what's yeah, the team? Well, yeah, I I took one for the team, meaning the the whole community. Let's say Asheville. In the community of Asheville, a couple kids die every year. Hmm. Those people took one for the team, so the rest of the kids can keep going on. You know, most kids don't die young, yeah. but it does happen. And to realize that and realize, uh oh, 
I'm the guy, you know, what bad luck. But there's nothing I can do about that. And I don't feel, I don't feel like Lee or I were responsible for that. Um, it was motorcycle related, but really it was about a kid coming out of the, the entrance instead of the exit to, uh, to a community on Beaver Dam Road in his dad's suburban, right. uh, making a bad choice in terms of getting on the road and not just T-boying them. And the fact that his mom came from a family of not only motorcycle racers, but race car drivers, uh, NASCAR race car drivers. One of her uncles is um, a driver for the Cartoon Network for many years. And her dad taught all of her kids, all of them, he's got a sister and two brothers, all of them to ride motorcycles and had a motorcycle dealership in Jackson, Mississippi, which his son now, one of his sons now runs. Um, and me growing up with bikes, you know, in my 20s, um, I don't think that was, I don't feel responsible for Zai in that regard because he actually got, you know, he got a good lesson from people that had been there and knew the danger of that kind of sport and he was really into it and he'd been well prepared and he'd taken courses and he was actually working at MR Motorcycle at the time when it happened. So, you know, I'd love to be able to blame something, but I, I guess what I'm saying is it's just, you know, it happened, and guys, I'm the guy that took one for the team so that the rest of y'all can keep moving on, and I just have to deal with it. Um, there's no regret in that. It's just like, oh, you know, it happened to me and my son and his mom and his sister. Well, it's very generous of you to take that perspective. I mean, um, well, blame doesn't get you anywhere. Well, blame. I don't. I don't mean that that's your only other option, but uh, just that notion that you taking one for the team. It. it I remember. Um, this is, if I may say, almost more horrific but it reminds me of a story i learned in kabbalah when, not kabbalah in chabad when i there's a chabad center here it's a jewish learning mm -hmm. center mm -hmm. and they're very very uh traditional but they're very um uh open i mean they're you're not going to change their ways they're very orthodox right but they don't try to turn you into an orthodox person they just educate you using the talmud and whatever anyway mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. um on the, the one class that I took pretty much all the way through, and every class I've taken has felt like a variation on this class, it was called Talmudic Ethics. And every ethical dilemma boiled down to rights versus responsibilities. So your rights as an individual versus your responsibility to your community. That mm -hmm. was um, pretty much everything boiled down to that. And they told a story about a guy in the concentration camps. And one day, you know, Hitler announced they were going to kill a thousand 16 year old boys that day and if they were they you know there was a bar and they had to walk under the bar and if they were tall enough to hit the bar they would live and if they were too short to hit the bar they would die that was how they were going to determine which thousand kids they killed you know classic yeah. kind of nazi randomism and this guy knew that his kid was too short to hit the bar and so his kid was going to die and he had some jewels and he had some things and he could he could have bribed his way out of it and saved the life of his own child and he went to the rabbi and he said you know what should i do you know my son's gonna die or i can save his life um but then someone else's son is gonna die 
in his place because they were going to stop at a thousand graciously. Yeah. And, uh, and so the rabbi ultimately said, you know, I can't tell you what to do, but the Talmud would say, you know, it's, if you, um, if, if you're, if you allow your son to be a part of this, you're not involved. You're not interfering with something. It's horrible what's happening, but someone's going to die. If you save your son's life and kill this other child, you are then responsible for that other child. Mm -hmm. You're, you're participating in the death of another person. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately he made this choice to sacrifice his own son so that he would not knowingly and deliberately be responsible for the death of another man's child. Which is the community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So it, it reminds me, that, like I said, it's like a mind-blowingly different yeah. Yeah. perspective. I mean, because it's not like you said you woke up that day and it was decided that somebody's child was going to die in a motorcycle yeah. accident. Yeah. And you said, well, you know, you raised your hand. Yeah. I mean, yeah. um, but it just it's a similar, I mean, it's an amazing perspective for you to be able to, to take on. I don't know that I could do it. Um, well, you don't, and nobody would know until it until comes to it. Until you're confronted with it, yeah. And then it's just who you are inside, depending on how you deal with it. That's yeah. that's an unknown until it happens. But, yeah, lots of depression around it, though. I spent a year, <clears throat> the year after, just really in dark moments. Not Well, and also, <laughs> we went out the day after. He died on a Monday. We went down to... I found out all his buds showed up and they were like, oh, we've been doing, you know, this little mini bike and motorcycle running around the Sam's Club parking lot every Tuesday. And we should do it in honor of Zai. I was like, that sounds cool. Let's do it. And I brought Shade, my daughter, and his cousin, Devin, was there. And he was like, I'll come. They were the same age. Or actually, he was a year younger than Zai. So we went and we had a great time. And I had my, I was on my buddy's little pocket rocket, little mini bike, and I totally high-sided and flipped and landed on my shoulder and tore my arm away from my body. All the cartilage was gone. Mm. And so that just happened. I didn't plan that. I did not want that to happen. I was not working for a year because of that, because my shoulder, I could wipe my ass with my right hand. I Mm. had to use my left hand and all kinds of weird stuff. So, um, but I also felt like I took one for Zai at that point. I was like, oh, it's okay because this is something they did to celebrate. They did it all the time. He was part of this crew that liked to have fun on bikes and um, nothing dangerous, you know, per se, but not that this wasn't dangerous. But I I screwed it up. I was having too much fun. Um, But I also felt like this was, this was, I, I didn't regret doing that. I felt, you know, it happened and I was there honoring my son the day after he died at Sam's Club parking lot of all places. Um, and it was, you know, I still don't, I don't regret that at all. It just happened. So you can't, I guess you can't, the lesson for me is you can't plan where your life's going. You just have to honor as much as you can when, it, when your life is happening, as it's happening, and, and look at it as honestly as you can and say, this is just life. It just happens. We have very little control for the most part. Which isn't a bad thing. It's the way everything works on the planet, I think. We just evolve and we move along and things happen. It's only man that pretends he can mastermind it all. We can't. 
do you have a spiritual life since you're kind of talking right on the edge of that I mean I hate religions I cannot I don't hate them I feel that religion more than any other human activity has been the cause for more pain on this planet since the very beginning of our existence and that's because it essentially is somebody else telling you what's going on and in my life I've done a fair amount of spiritual exercises let's say from spiritual retreats and and you know sitting at the feet of masters kind of thing to psychedelics and stuff like ayahuasca and you know stuff where there's a spiritual um, reaching out and uh, and I've had moments in pure clarity without any drugs or any circumstances where I feel like I've touched a higher source and so I'm I believe that there's a spirit that's that's part of us that's out there it's not a religious action for me at all so I do feel strongly grounded in the idea that there is um, I don't like to say higher power because I'm not sure that power is part of it but something higher for sure something more than we are and I also believe that we are capable of accessing that in ways that probably None of us, maybe a few individuals over the course of time have realized, and I certainly don't. I just know that we can access more of that sense of um, spiritual flow, if you will, that's riding there all the time. We're just ignorant. We're not in touch with it. Um, based Because of the way we live our lives, the way the culture um, surrounds us. And I think animals other than humans, are way more in touch with that sense than we are. We just don't recognize it. And we don't recognize that they recognize it uh, because their language isn't the same as ours. Yeah. So I, to answer your question, yeah, I think there's a strong spiritual component in my life. It's just, it's personal. It's something that... Um, I remember as I woke up one night in my bed many years ago and just had this moment and the moment was really deeply spiritual. But if you asked me what happened, I couldn't tell you. And if you said, well, can I have some? I couldn't give you any of it. I couldn't share any of that with you. It was just something that was personal, but it was intensely spiritual in the sense that, you know, if you want to say it this way, I was talking to God. Um, not God, but talking to some type of higher, something beyond just me as a human um, yeah, just keep me out of church. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you moved into a valley of Baptists. Yes. Well, yeah. I remember a couple years after we lived in our first house in Leicester, there was a little box house being constructed, and it was completed. And we were wondering, well, who's going to move into that? It's going to be a young couple. And sure enough, Shade and I were walking up the road one day, and there was a woman coming down, young woman with a little girl, a little baby toddler, and it was our new neighbor, and we greeted each other. How you doing? And then her next question was, so what Baptist church do you go to? Wow. Not a lot of uh <laughs> I didn't have an there. answer. Yeah. I had no answer. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. I know when I moved when I moved to Asheville, and I'm Jewish, so like anything that's at all smacks of Christianity smacks me pretty hard. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I'm trying, I mean, it's like I'm trying to soften around it and I don't even know if it's something that's optional. 
Um, but I did voluntarily put a Christmas tree in my house this year for the first time ever that I chose, like went there and bought it. Because my daughter's, you know, only half, she's half Jewish and she likes to remind me only half Jewish. And it's a tree. <laughs> trees are it's awesome. Tree. Yeah, trees are great. Well, and, I, and we have someone who lives with us, a tenant and who's a friend and, and she wanted, you know, she has all the lights and she sort of politely asked me like, oh, you thinking of making a tree? And I, was, she's, I said, if you decorate it, I'll, I'll do it. So anyway, <laughs> so that's what happened. Uh, but I remember when I moved here, I would see like three churches on one corner, yeah. you know, or four churches on like every corner had its own church. One was Baptist, one was Methodist, one was Presbyterian, and one was whatever the other one. I mean, I couldn't understand why you needed that many churches. Like, how different are they? And I remember when I, um, I, I met her mom online, which is, you know, not even a stigma anymore, although back then it still might have been. And I remember, you know, looking at different profiles and stuff, and people would say things like, you know, I'm under spirituality. They're like, I'm very open-minded spiritually. Like, I'm, I was raised Baptist, but I would consider other religions like Methodist. <laughs> <laughs> Presbyterian, you know. And I'm like, that is not a different religion. Not from my perspective. I mean, I understand that they've all got their own sort of uh, angles on things, but... but uh, it's ibuprofen for the masses, I think. I think churches have become a panacea. And it's long standing, so it's an entrenched system that, you know, maybe three to five thousand years it'll weave its way out. Um, I'm a pagan. If I'm anything, I'm a pagan. Yeah. I'm probably an anarchist too, but I'm a pagan by religion in the sense that I love, I think that everything around us, the world, which people call nature, but it's everything including the air and the stars and the lack of air out there in the universe is what teaches us. That's our teacher. That's our guru. You know, if we want to bow to someone, it's nature, you know, and there's lots to be learned from that. And it's, it will calm your soul and it will spur up your heels. So you'll get moving. All that stuff can be found. Taking a freaking walk in the woods is all you need. I think for me, yeah. And I understand that people take a lot of comfort from their religion. And I, I can't, I don't want to take that away from somebody, but I think in the long term, it's killing all of us. The idea of organized religion is separating us from, from our nature, our true nature as animals on the planet. Um, paganism, you know, celebrates that in that respect. Um, and it also celebrates the idea of a deity, or at least you know, the idea of a power that's beyond um, just human power or whatever, human ability, human consciousness. That also opens up the idea that everything in nature is of the same creator, yes. whatever, whatever that is, yes. same creative yes. force or creative yeah. origin. Yeah. And so, I mean, I know in, in Eastern spirituality you know one of the phases of enlightenment is i am that mm. you know it's yeah. that you look at something and, and it's not just like you go oh yeah i'm that thing it's not an intellectual thing apparently um but it's actually like a an experiential you 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 feel it you're like well, i i'm that horse you know mm. i'm that whatever mm. i mean i had <laughs> i had that experience once in my life uh when i had um ingested uh the san pedro cactus in ecuador out of a shampoo bottle so the guys hadn't cleaned the shampoo bottle enough so i was like burping up shampoo it's already like this horrifying Bubbles. swamp juice that's, that makes you want to puke anyway 
And then... What's San Pedro? There's another name? That's not Datura. No, there's another name, and I can't okay. think of it. Yeah. Um, I'll, I, if I do, I'll say it. But uh, anyway, we so we took this stuff, and we were like on top of a hill because we wanted a view. But then it was like... It started coming on pretty quickly, and I was like, it's so dry up here, and I'm so thirsty, and I'm like, I'm, we're going to die on this hill, you know? So we got to get down to the water. Let's go to the river. Let's. I'm going to sit by a river all day. I was with these two other guys. It wasn't their first trip. So they were like, cool, man, whatever. You know, they didn't care. One of their names was Freedom, and the other guy was Gary. <laughs> and they were these Perfect. guys who I'd met, you know, down there, and uh, they were crazy. They were from Oregon. They were such, they were real good old boys, but Oregon good old boys, you mm-hmm. know, which is a different... Kind of nature boys. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's a different uh it's a different gene pool than the good old boys from the south. Yeah. But still very like, you know, just good guys, but also, you know, pretty wild. Um so we were sitting down by the river and uh we spent the whole eleven hours at the river and we bought like a bunch of bananas from some kid who was selling bananas that were just picked off the tree. So they were actually sweet, these little tiny chiquita bananas, mm-hmm. you know. Finally understood the song. I was like, they are delicious. <laughs> you know, if you haven't been uh, shipped in the, you know, the hull of a boat and picked months before they're ripe. And, uh, and there was a horse that came down on its own, just like wandered down to where we were. And I remember looking at that horse, tripping pretty hard. Mm. But I remember looking at that horse and turning to Gary and be like, oh my God, dude, that is me. Mm. Like, I am that horse. In that moment, I completely mm, felt mm. that I was that horse. Mm. And and uh, and then that was a really powerful moment for me. And not that I would advocate taking drugs to achieve that moment, but having had that moment, I knew that like that idea exists. Yeah, and then I remember connectedness. when I, yeah, and the fact yeah. the idea the I am that consciousness, yeah. I got a glimpse of it. Yeah. Um, and then you know the there are problems with taking drugs to have those glimpses. You know, when the door closes, it slams shut pretty hard. It's hard to get back there. Um, but, uh, so that was one experience. And the other was, uh, I wanted to be over the river, like looking down on the river and there was a tree going over the river. And so I climbed up on the tree to my, within my, my like, uh, comfort zone. And then I thought to myself, you know, if I was a bobcat, I would crawl up the rest of this tree and I'd get a better view. And I was like, but then I would probably fall into the river. And that's how kids die in Ecuador on drugs. <laughs> you thought that? And I had this whole thought. So I was like, I'm not going to do it. Uh, you know, because I don't want to be another story. One of those kids. Some kids who, you know, took too many drugs in Ecuador and fell yeah. headfirst into a six inch deep river. <laughs> yeah. But I'm looking down. I'm like, the rocks look so soft from here. You know, I was like, but I knew. I was like, they're not soft. You know, so I climbed down off the tree and that was the end of that. But. That was those are the two most memorable moments in that eleven hours spent by the river talking the whole time, you know. Um, huh. Yeah, that was that was something. Um, but to bring it back to what you were talking about, uh, I do think like how is it possible that one thing would be of creation or God or whatever? I mean, I can use the word God because it doesn't have the same stigma yeah, stigma yeah, for me the like Christian God. um but uh you know how can any one thing be from that and not all things be mm. from that like either it all is or it's all not i mean i don't see that only something yeah it's a pretty work. simple question yeah it has a simple answer yeah yeah um yeah. but i but but that's not what religion you know organized religion doesn't teach that it teaches that this is the way 
if you listen to me and my books and my teachings and my scrolls, this is the way. And how do you deal with that? How do you say, well, what about the other ways that I see all around me? The Methodist church, whatever, the Presbyterian, the Anglican. You know, how does that work? And But if you're caught up in your own church, you can do the, you know, you do the thing on a Sunday and then the rest of the week you're busy working. Yeah. You know, and prepping meals and hanging out with your kids and watching YouTube. Well, I remember there's this joke. This guy gets to heaven and, uh, you know, St. Peter's showing him around. And he's like, who are those people over there? And he's like, those are the Catholics. They're doing Hail Marys and stuff like that. And, you know, who are those people over there? And those are, you know, the Baptists and they're doing whatever they do. And they said, who's those people over there? He said, those are the Mormons. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and that's everyone, not just the Mormons, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, it was, but it was pretty, I mean, it was a Mormon who told me that joke. So, oh, that's yeah, good. yeah, I mean, it would have to be. Um, Otherwise, it's, you know, it's... But anti- once you reach that state of, of, once you touch or taste that state of connectedness, it's it's very difficult to go back from that. Yeah, you totally. Yeah, um, yeah. I think I did that. The first time I really did that with any great impact was, was uh, ingesting mushrooms, you know, eating... Actually, they were cultivated uh, psilocybin in a jar, in a mason jar. Mm. Um, and that was, you know, and you're... you're statement about the closed door is true after that it's like well what do you do with that once you've been exposed to something that you think is you know, one of the most incredible things in your lives in your life and then it's not there after the drug is gone you know and your brain is readjusted to its quote-unquote normal self how do you deal um, but it still leaves you with that for me it left me with that sense of that there is an undeniable connectedness to everything it's not it's not the internet it's not texts it's not smartphone it's out there in, yeah. in all of us and i don't mean humans i mean all of us yeah blades of grass to whatever everything that's here is connected and it's not just this oh well you know if you if you take care of your lawn you know it'll look nice for you it's it's a connectedness that's at a spiritual level where it's made of the same stuff and there's a there's probably communication going on that we just don't even realize that's connecting everybody um well i think the thing we you know and i this is just something that's been up for me lately in my situation is you know when we do something that is disrespectful or unkind to another person we think we're doing it to them but there is a very real place where we're connected to them where we're one with them so doing something awful to someone else is doing it to ourselves and and unless we're actually feeling self-destructive and i think in those moments that's not the motivation you know we're all about destroying this other person because there's that that uh ignorance around the idea that they're not different i mean there's one level where they're distinct but there's another very important level where they're not and I think that's a huge part of what messes us up is, is thinking we're, we're more of an island than we are. I think that's true, but why, here's a question that bothers me. Why do, and I spent six years in boys boarding school, so I know something about <laughs> this, but why, and also one of maybe three white guys in a all, pretty much all black school in Barbados mm. and West Indies. What makes us attack those that are different? What's what's the underlying reason or the emotion that causes us to you know? And I've seen myself in a situation where I can't do that. 
I don't, I mean, I probably have some kind of natural inclination somewhere because I think it's in the human psyche, but I've seen where I can't, if someone falls to the ground and I'm like, oh, let me help you. And then three guys come around and kick him because he's on the ground. What, yeah. what is that that makes us move that way? Well, there's a lot of possible answers for that and I probably don't have all of them. Oh, um, uh, maybe I do actually. Let me read. <laughs> Jason. <laughs> um, the... <laughs> Only I would choose to answer you the question that way. Yeah, no, I mean, I know well. I know that I don't enough to pretend that I do, or could. Uh, I mean, I had a teacher who would say a couple things around that. You know, he would say, um, I mean, it's there's one. One is identity. Like we identify with who we are, and like attracts like, mm-hmm. and and because we believe in the illusion of the surface level of who sameness, we are yeah. and we believe in the yeah we believe in the illusion of sameness what yeah. appears to be the same yeah. and so with something that appears to be different and we're ignorant of that deeper level where it is the same where it's connected right um we feel like well if we can just get rid of that other thing that looks different then everything here will be the same so the quest is to become our innate quest is to become connected to everything. Some would I mean, say that the only force in the universe is the desire to take separation and bring it back yeah, to oneness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was That's you know, interesting. Yeah. It's the that, only force in the universe. And and in an emotional level, that's ex, that's love. That is experienced yeah, as love, yeah. that force. On a physical level, it's gravity. Yeah. So yeah. it I mean that is a mind blower for me. Yeah, um yeah. and uh but that's true. That would give rise to feelings of hate and persecution and all this stuff that we do to each other because we feel separate. We feel separate. Not connected. And the experience of separation is extremely uncomfortable. But it's the it's the experience that we become habituated to. And so out of force of habit, we continue to propagate what is comfortable and familiar. Yeah. So in the desire for oneness, we actually invest and spend more energy increasing the level of separation because we yeah, think yeah. that that's going to give us the feeling that we want, but it doesn't. You can't, it's not eradicating other, you can, you know, this, the heads side of the coin doesn't become the only side of the coin by eradicating the tail side of the coin. Yeah. It's a coin. There's always yeah. going to be both sides. sides. If you if you eradicate the, the the tail, the head goes with it, and that's a thing that we also I think yeah. we miss. Yeah. yeah. See, I did have the answer. That's good. I like that. <laughs> so we have to and go. And you doubted me. So we no, I didn't. I knew there was yeah, knew there was something there. Yeah. But we need to. So we need to. You know, is there a big picture? Uh, is there a cone? Is there something we can learn from that that will help us not judge so quickly? You know, well, I think what, the guy's on the ground. He's just, you know, he got, he got, who knows what happened to him, but he's weak and he fell and he's on the ground. And the urge of the guy standing up is to kick him. How does he transmute that urge into the, the urge to pick him up? Yeah. What is it? You know, there's this violent side of us. Uh, it's not just men, it's men and women, it's all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, there's a couple forces at work there. There's ignorance is the biggest one. The ignorance that we're 
this that we're connected, you know. So kicking the person on the yes, ground is kicking yeah. a piece of ourselves. That's yeah. one thing at work. Um, but the you were asking, you know, what's required to get past that? I mean, humility, like real humility and empathy, two things I'm freaking horrible at. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's all those, and and then the, the weird thing is all those virtues that religions talk about. Even though I agree with you that the way they talk about them is no, but it's good stuff. You know, yeah, no, 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 it's all there's there. so it's much like, truth in religion. Yeah. Sure, yeah, sure. There's, there's all good, not all, but most of it is really good stuff. Yeah, stuff that we've learned through the ages. There's tons of good stuff to be had in there. Not and is I'm, it is it good parenting? I mean, I'm thinking myself as a little kid. I wouldn't have done that as a little kid, but I know, and I'm talking like a five year old, you know. But I yeah. know other, I knew other five year olds that would do that. Sure. So yeah. we have. Do we learn that by age five, or do we have to come to learn it by the time we're twenty-five? Or does it take that long? To, or, and I, I would place money on the guy that wanted to kick the kid when he was five, still wants to kick the kid when he's twenty-five. And as part of that, if our role models as as young, you know, as young people, our parents and our teachers and all the other people that are our teachers in life, as young kids. Is that what, you know, do we get affected by what we see? You know, the guy yelling at the woman and da 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 Does that become our role model that we learn early on? Absolutely. I mean, the way we, you know, the way we handle our kids when they behave adversely to what we want. Yeah. You know, we think like, well, that's going to curb their behavior. It might in the moment because they're just trying to get out of the way. But what they learn more than anything in my experience is, oh, that's how you handle when you right. don't get what you want. Right. And so my daughter talks to me in all kinds of unacceptable ways. And I'm like, where did she learn that? It must be her mother. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's easy for you to yeah. So, well, no, I mean, that's, you know, I only yeah. say that when it's obviously yeah. me. Yeah. Well, that's not true. I say it both times. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, just I'm hedging my bets. But, but yeah, I mean, it's it. so I think there's a piece of that. I think the kid who, yeah. who kicks the kid on the ground, you know, learned a piece of that from home. But... There also can be a kid who comes from that same home and would have the opposite yeah, response. Yeah, yeah. So it's not a, it's not. No, I think some of us are born with more empathy. I really do. I think there's a gene that comes into play of some sort or genes, and that we we have more sensitivity to certain things and more empathy about our fellow people, whether they're animals, you know, pets, or just animals at large or humans. Um, but role models certainly. You know, um, when I, I had a very intense uh, spiritual teacher in practice for seven years, it's part of why I moved to Asheville, was to study with someone in particular. Um, I'm not studying with him anymore, although lately I've been kind of, it's crazy, but I've been slowly starting to feel like, wow, I'm almost ready to consider doing that again. Like my life is so much has happened and I've kind of come full circle and I might be ready to kind of uh -huh. open myself up. That again, I started meditating again, like um, you know, which is the the core piece of that of that practice is yeah. having a daily meditation and and um. But uh, when I studied with him, he taught us a lot of different things. You know, he we we learned hands-on healing, we learned astrology, we did a lot of personal process work. And he was he's a pretty gifted and amazing guy. You know, he understands physics and math, and he would he would share a lot of different concepts so that we were examining this thing called life from all these different angles. And one of them, which now that I feel like I'm going to discredit myself by saying it, but uh, I don't care. 
Um, one of them was astrology. And not that I would lean too heavily on it, but I'm always amazed when I read the my astrology how much of it is just dead on mm. true to me. Like today I was looking through pictures in my Dropbox and I'd photographed some pages from some Vedic astrology books that were about my chart. And I just happened to read one of them today and it's like, you know, problems with a problematic mother and most people probably feel like they have problems with their mother but my mom and I have very specific issues that really get in my way you know and and then uh problems with the heart and chest and I have a heart murmur um and and it's just like how in the world is that in my astrological chart so let's pretend there's something there um it speaks to the interconnectedness of all things yeah. The yeah. the moment that we your chart is determined by the moment that you're born, that they have to pick something, and so the moment that you kind of enter the space time continuum, they take a picture of the sky. That's your natal chart, and then they map everything out from there. And uh, you know the idea that that would have nothing to do with your parents and everything else is is un fathomable if you see everything as interconnected if you see everything as completely random then it doesn't matter they're a bunch of independent events yeah. uh but i have found more support for the connectedness of things as i explore it and i examine it more and more connections make themselves known to me um and i'm able to do something with that as opposed to just chalking myself up to the randomness of it because um, i can't really go anywhere with randomness you know, it reminds me of the does that does that <clears throat> seems like it that it's a vote for religion in the sense that religion helps people, but it doesn't tell me that it's true. Well, religion to me offers a couple things. I mean, the, the church offers community. There's value in yeah, that. Yeah. But religion takes very abstract concepts and linearizes them. Mm -hmm. And then people live in terms of the linearity and the, and the nature of life and existence <clears throat> is nonlinear in yeah. my observation. So even if those things are connected, that doesn't make it linear. Like those connections aren't necessarily linear. That's why I think the, you know, solving the mathematics of the universe is abstract algebra. I mean, it's not straight addition and subtraction. Right. And... So, uh, you know, the, the, I have this sense that when Jesus spoke, he felt into, let's just assume Jesus was real and everything. I don't want us to be any, I don't feel the need to be uh, I'm with you. disparaging or, yeah. or uh, yeah. to anyone who might be listening, but, um, let's assume he's real and let's assume he said all the things he's credited for saying. I mean, that to me is, is someone who tapped into a very deep level of his own being and tried to give expression to it. Mm -hmm. A very abstract quality of, of the healing nature of being, and he tried to give expression to it. And when the words came out of his mouth, they came out linearly. Right. And people attached right. themselves to the linear so, right. quality of the words as opposed to the abstract nature of what they meant. So the meaning gets lost. The words get learned. But the words without the meaning, it's not so different from a piece of furniture that might look beautiful, but if it's not put together well, it's not going to hold up. Yeah. So it's the $10 chair. Yeah. The church is the $10 chair. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. We yeah. did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he brought it all around. We brought it all circle. the way back. Yeah. yeah. And the hard work, you could even equate this. We almost did it. 
you could equate when you talked about you know nobody's willing to spend the money to pay for the time it takes to do something right similarly it's a rare person who's willing to put in the time to do the work to find the abstract nature of things in themselves yeah. it's much easier to go to, to church and have somebody just tell you how to do it and just try to do it that way yeah yeah and it, it puts you on a road i mean it's not a bad road per se but it it's a road towards war and division and unconnectedness in that sense in the long term because of the linear i think you're you're expressing well because of that linear nature it's not how we work as humans we're complex i liken it always to an evolving spiral it's not a circle it's a spiral moving one way or the other up or down you take your pick but that's a complicated system that will never work if you say the sky is blue it's true the sky is blue but there's a lot more going on to the sky than just the sky is blue right and maybe that's where jesus's teachings got now the fact that we could somehow know all of the words he spoke it would astound my mind if you know this happened yeah. a long time ago and it was there's been a lot of editors involved, and I'm an editor from way back when. And I know <laughs> how that works. <laughs> I'm the hundredth monkey, and I did not hear what the first one said. So, but still, you know, if he's speaking, he's speaking from the spirit because he's connected, and so he's coming out with what he can come out with. But it, but it made me think of my nighttime bed experience where I woke up and and there was no way to lin to express this what was going on in a linear fashion. It was just a spiritual spiraling complex thing that was very true truer than you know most of my daily life and yet how would i explain that to you i couldn't go out and teach it on the pulpit um not sure what that has to do with woodworking now well there's a different there's a difference between having an experience being able to give expression to the experience and then being able to guide people towards their version of that experience those are different abilities. That's where Asian philosophy has always drawn me. I've been always drawn, not yeah, just to anything in the Far East. The Chinese these days, a lot of China, China philosophy has grabbed my attention, but a lot of Japanese too, and anywhere in the Far East, that, that there's more of a sense of, of here's what I see. This is my truth. Now make your own lotus, you right. know. And, I'm, and they're trying to help by giving you signposts, but they're not giving you the book. And once you hand the book over, it's like, oh, I'm on page 237. I'm almost there, man, because someone right. I'm reading the book, and the book isn't going to tell you. It's just going to be a signpost. And, and most of the churches that I know of, are not. they don't operate that way. You know, Western churches are, are here's the book, and it has to be done this way. Um, and that's not where true answers come from or it's not even an answer you're looking for it's just you're looking for connection just want to know that you are connected you know this brief time you have um and i don't you know i rarely get it these days i mean i know of it but i don't feel it and get it i feel you mentioned randomness i feel a lot of my life is extremely random the past few years um which is not a happy place to be um uh, you know, that doesn't mean that I can't look and get connected in different areas. That's the, um, that's the value of, of a high-functioning meditation practice. 
because uh, when you do a meditation that that works well, and that's a dangerous statement for me to make, but when you do a meditation that works well, um, you rest into the organized part of yourself. You know, mm-hmm. the the, the mm-hmm. underlying structure of existence, while it's completely abstract, it's also extremely yeah. organized yeah. in its own way. It might, and so things that seem random suddenly aren't random, yeah. or the idea of free will and predetermination come together they're not right separate yeah they're not separate it only seems like we want to think we have free will because we want to believe that we can make our own choices and maybe to some degree we can we can go left or right or we think we're choosing making that choice whatever let's pretend let's pretend on that spectrum we've got 10 percent free will free will the other 90 percent is predetermined where we live who our family is yeah all that a lot of that stuff yeah we we came into yeah um, we didn't just get airdropped onto the planet. It was spinning and we landed and some of us landed in Africa. And some, well, maybe actually, depending on how you believe with the soul. But but even that, there would probably be some connectivity because of the like attracting like. Like I, mm-hmm. um, someone asked my teacher, you know, are you always, if, if there's past lives, are you always with the same family? You know, lifetime after lifetime. And he said, well... Not necessarily, but when sticks and leaves are floating down a river, they tend to travel together for at least some of the time. And maybe they come apart, but they come back together. You know, every once in a while, a tree gets stuck, I mean, a leaf gets stuck in an eddy current and the rest of the leaves float on without it. But yeah. by and large, you know, they float down yeah. together. And, and, and I thought that was kind of a I nice like description of that. Um, my meditation, my high functioning meditation would be spending the day cutting dovetails by hand. Hmm. I got a handsaw, a Japanese pull saw, bunch of sharp chisels, a little mallet, a, a knife, a marking gauge that has a knife that strikes a knife line in my wood. And I become absorbed. I get I lose myself. The focus is immense. It has to be tremendously pinpoint to be able to do that and do a good job. And time disappears, you know, in that sense. It's like it's like sitting at meditation and, and losing your ego, losing not losing it, but putting that in a in a quiet place and not having that out front clamoring at you all the time. And it's a wonderful place to be and you don't even know you're there until you finish and you look up and go, oh, Where was I? And you were just woodworking. Yeah. A lot of it's like that. Yeah. I used to have days like that in the shop. Not yeah. Not quite what you're talking about, um, not that uh, level of concentration. But I'd have, I would sometimes I would be in there and I'd be working for a couple hours. I really had it painting what I, uh-huh. I painted before yeah. I did, you know, yeah. um, where I would just get lost in the painting and I'd be there for three hours, four hours, yeah. six hours, and 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 one thing was for sure, if I was painting, I was not making war. Yeah. And I remember my yeah. aunt coming in, who's like, I love her, but she's a super materialistic interior designer. And, you know, she's a wonderful person in the context of her proclivities, you know. And uh, and her late husband, we were having a conversation about God and all this stuff. And I was really, like, into this at the time. And there must have been 10 people in the room when I was talking for way too much. And her husband, who was still alive at the time, said, you're like, like now. And, <laughs> and uh, her, her husband said, you know, my God is money. 
Yeah. And yeah. And I remember thinking like that is the most obnoxious thing to say. And in the case of this man, it was the most enlightened thing to say. He really understood how money is equal to God. Like he got it. He got money on the level that God functions. Right. Like right. that money with money anything can happen. You can do anything with money sort of, you know, like a hell of a lot. And and so for him that was his God, you know. And it was like this incredibly shallow and profound statement at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so my aunt, his or I guess they're cousins, whatever. She was uh, they they were in my studio and I was painting and I was telling them I was like I just she's like, how can you spend all your time in here painting, you know? And and I said I don't know I just think the world would be a better place if this is what people did, so it's what I'm doing. Um, and I'll tell you when you mentioned regrets earlier. People ask me if I if I have regrets every now and then, or if I if I wish that I was still painting. And I will say one of the few regrets in my life is that I don't paint anymore, mm. because you'll I'll never get those paintings back that I didn't do when I was twenty five yeah. and yeah. twenty six no, and twenty seven. Yeah. They're gone. Yeah. It's such a, um, it's such a a direct link to the subconscious that you'll just there's just no way to get it back you know it's 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 a it's a polaroid of everything in your being where it's lining up at that moment and um yeah and people are like well you'll do it when you're older i'm like maybe I but know. i won't do that when i'm older no that's gone you know, my, only... my background is fine arts I've, i studied art at a really wonderful community college in newtown pennsylvania bucks county community college and uh, you know lots of and had a come from a family of artists so i had innate skills to begin with uh, which has actually stood me in good stead as a woodworker because as a designer it helps a lot tremendously to design furniture with an artist's eye but and i painted and i did a lot of drawing a lot of sculpture and i was thinking recently how god i haven't drawn just like still like life drawing I'd love to do life drawing again. I used to really enjoy that. I used to do it for hours. In fact, I used to model myself, which was interesting. But um, that that whole thing, you know, it's like you get caught up in your in your daily life, and all these things that you knew you have in the in your past are really hard to take out of your pocket anymore and and make change with. You know, I'd love to be able to do it. Now I could. I probably will at some point do something. But there's a huge aspect of my artist self that never gets never sees the light of day like you're saying you know it's there and it used to be there in force and now I'm consumed with other stuff or I'm just you know biding my time surviving you know and, yeah. there's, and I don't make room for that milling trees yeah 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 doing something usually yeah. or watching a movie I'll watch a lot of movies that's in a way that's biding time which is okay. Yeah. You know, it's better than, it's a lot better than making war. I don't want to make war. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the artist's life is, is a tough one because we're, we're constantly, we're looking at our world all the time. And so we become, if we aren't already sensitive, we become hypersensitive to our world because we're looking at it and, um, not necessarily judging it, but we are looking at it and trying to see what it is. And uh, it's it's a it's a it takes a lot of energy to do that on a constant basis. Um, and woodworking is one way for me to do that because there's a real mechanical side to woodworking. That's the other aspect of me that I love. It's like 
like you said earlier on, you got to be a machinist if you're going to be a furniture maker. Well, you do. You have to know nuts and bolts and all kinds of of uh, mechanical type um, situations. And that's not the time that I start meditating when I'm under the table saw wrenching. Right. I am not meditating. I am busting knuckles, blood's dripping onto my face, and I'm <laughs> trying to figure out what the hell's going wrong. And it gets fixed, you know, and then you get back up there and you do something that's that's more meditative. That, you know, the dovetails to me, cutting dovetails by hand is like still life drawing or life drawing. Hmm. I'm sitting there and, and uh, trying to reach, trying to put, well, trying to, your soul knows something and you're trying to get it out there and put it on paper or wood or whatever medium you're working with. And so it's a, a digging process and it's ultimately it just, it feeds you, I think. You know, you come away enriched to some degree in your life. If you're wrenching on table saws all day, you're you're gonna come away just wanting to get the hell out of there and go home, drink your Budweiser. I, I don't like Budweiser. <laughs> I think we did it. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun talking with you. Oh, that's great, man. I mean I feel like uh, we've had some good talks, but it was always like we had to be doing something else. Yeah. You know, and the the, the opportunity to sit down and do this when this is the thing we're yeah. supposed to be doing. It's like it was overdue. Yeah. Yeah. We've had our conversations cut short. This one we were able to cut long. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. Well, thanks for doing it. You're welcome. And, uh, and I'll let you know when it's available for listening. Yeah, I do. And... And I want to thank Adam for oh, commandeering the technical aspect. Yeah, so no kidding. Thanks, Our Adam. producer Adam. Um, yeah, he's he's he has created a little miracle in this dining room yeah. of the house. You know, um, so thanks very much, Adam. And uh, Adam's gonna, as long as he can stand it, he's gonna be here for all of these. So, yay, so we're Adam. grateful for him. And then he's got to edit it. I mean, it's not, these are going to be, you know, as unedited as possible. The whole idea is for them to be uncut. There's always editing. The but, only about the only thing that's not edited is a poem. We did it. My first podcast ever. I can't even tell you how good it feels to launch this thing. I know everyone and their dog has podcasts these days, but this is truly significant for me. Words can't describe how elated I was the moment Learning to Fail became official and I could see my logo on iTunes. I want to give a special shout-out to my tireless producer, Adam Fields. Adam has been in the trenches with me for over a year because that's how long it takes for me to do anything. I have been waiting for years to have this conversation with Andy. I couldn't know for sure if it would go this deep, but I hoped it would, and I'm glad it did. If you like what you heard, please visit our website, use our Amazon portal, and rate us on iTunes. Make sure you tell your friends about us, and if you feel so inclined, please consider making a donation on our donation page. That way, we can keep failing for years. <laughs> <laughs>